Good evening and welcome to tonight's episode of Pizza Punk. Now, this is this is rather exciting. I have to tell you, this is really, really, really exciting for me. And it's partially, I'm going to just do a little, a little intro. Um, I don't know when I first heard about the manimals, probably, you know, in tandem generally. And I think this is not, this is not true for everybody, but you know, usually you listen to one band and then another band bleeds through for me. I was a fan of the misfits and, you know, I was looking through and I saw, Oh, the misfits did shows with this band called manimals. Wow. They're like, kind of like, it's like they're kind of like the other side of the coin here who's this guy larry the wolf he's got this weird mane that he puts on like it's crazy like who what is this what is this um and they put out initially they put out an ep called uh blood it's either blood of the harvest or blood is the harvest forgive me uh for my for my trepidation wording here uh point is it's it's a killer little it's like an ep mini album i've heard it referred to as sort of like both and um you know about 10 years ago i took a stab at writing my very first screenplay and um it was about lycanthropy 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 whatever it was about werewolves and I decided to name the main character of my story, Larry the Wolf, after Larry the Wolf from Manimals. It just felt right. Now, you know, I mean, in turn, Larry the Wolf is a spin on, you know, uh, uh, Lawrence Talbot, right? Talbot from uh, from the uh, werewolf, uh, from the, the Wolfman from 1941 uh, with Lon Chaney Jr. But. The point being is that I was like, I was like, my character, he's got to be called Larry the Wolf. It's and it's in it's sort of like a little wink about this band. And on his knuckles tattooed was uh, it was he I think he had he had how did he had he had it was like Larry and Wolf. But it was I don't know. Somehow the letters all worked out. But he was going to have Larry and Wolf somehow on his knuckles. That was the plan. In any case, um, fast forward very recently. Uh, Larry and I have been in contact and um, I was so happy when he said that he was going to come on the show and uh, uh, talk shop. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff. We're not just here to talk about one thing in particular. And not only that, I, I, this really shocked me more than anything. I was not expecting Larry to transform, um, but I guess somewhere, you know, you know how they say it's like always like five o'clock somewhere when you want to drink wine, whenever you want somewhere out there, there's a full moon. And I guess somewhere tonight there was a full moon because Larry is not a man. He is the wolf. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the show. A big welcome to the show to Larry, the mother effing wolf. How you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Jeff. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Do I sound excited? You sound you sound super excited. I got to tell you, I love that makeup, man. Uh, I'm so I was so happy to see you wearing 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 your face, wearing your actual face, your real visage. Uh, this is um, the real me. I hate to break it to you. That is the real you. So tell me, let, let's start there. Actually, I want to talk a little bit about your makeup scheme and I, wh where where did the inspiration come from and how did you come about that specific because that is a very specific 
makeup. It really is singular to you. And you, it's like, you know, some people, they can do a whole thing on their face, but you're like, it's you, it's like you use your makeup to accentuate and not, you know, intensify. I thank you, Jeff. And first of all, thank you very much for having me on. It's an honor. It's a pleasure. I enjoy, I just text or uh, sent you an email how much I enjoyed your recent talk about Lou Reed Berlin. We're going to so talk about that. that tonight. We will. Uh, so um, <laughs> I love that you referenced uh, Lon Chaney and the Wolf, the Wolfman. Uh, my initials are LC, like uh, Lon Chaney. I was a kid that grew up, uh, of course, monster kid of the 60s, uh, early 70s on famous monsters of Filmland Magazine, Aurora Monster Models, Marvel Comic Books, and all that. And um, so and the monsters on TV, Batman, all that great stuff, Marvel, uh, Marching Society cartoons, Spider-Man. And um, I never thought about music. I played sports growing up. And uh, I, of course, I was one of those. But I always loved music because I loved Elvis. And um, so uh, I think it was probably I was one of those uh, dumb kids that gave all my money to Kiss about 75 through about 79. <laughs> and, and I, of course, and, and I, and I, uh, you know, so I was very influenced by that, but my first aspirations was to either be something in pro wrestling or um, being an actor like Lon Chaney Sr., Man of a Thousand Faces, uh, not Junior. You know, loved him as well, but that was really my something I was very – I read all those famous Monsters magazines when I was a kid, and Flory Ackerman and James Warren would put out with, all the, with Lon Chaney's makeup kit, and he could transform himself from Quasimodo to Eric the Phantom to – uh, the guy with the with the bad eye in West of Zanzibar to the guy with missing legs in the penalty. Um, you know, I just thought that would all work together somehow. You know, I saw Gene Simmons as a kid. I thought, okay, he likes all a lot of the same stuff I do. Horror movies, Lon Chaney can kind of play pretty well. The songs are rock and roll. Uh, and what? I, but I didn't want to go out and be like Kiss or something like that. So really all I did was accentuate my own features. I put and, if you put a lot, you know, a flashlight on my face, it's my face. Um, it's really effective. It really, really like it's a really effective makeup because it's just not, you know, I mean, you look at Kiss. Kiss is like full, full on everything over the top, like you know, covering the whole face. And this is like, this is like the reverse of Kiss. It's just, it's just a hint. It's it does it does what it needs to do, and then it just you know it's not it's not overbearing you know, thank and I you. like that. I like well, that. Thank you. And one of the things also was I was pointed out early on when I first started doing this, developing it. Someone said you look more like uh, Oliver Reed in Curse of the Werewolf, which that's not as good a movie as the original. Uh, you know, Werewolf from London with Henry Hall or The Wolfman with Lon Chaney, but the makeup is fantastic on Oliver. Great Reed. makeup. It's a I, spectacular makeup, and it really, you can see it's Oliver Reed, and that's what I wanted. You can still see it's me. Um, that is a fantastic Hammer film. I, you know, very recently, Hammer was a blind spot for me for a long time, and I finally uh, bit the bullet. I got one of those box sets, and it had, of course, it has Curse of the Werewolf in it. And, you know, spoilers on a on a 70-year-old something movie, either a 60-year-old movie, you don't get a lot of werewolf until the very end. But they they keep it very interesting. And, you know, the thing about Oliver Reed, he's just such a he's actually in a bunch of those Hammer movies. And he is so he's such a magnetic actor. I mean, even just look at him in in uh, 
uh, Oliver Twist, man. Oh, my God, is he good in that role? There's you a know. spectacular film with him. It's very disturbing called The Devils by Ken Russell. Seen it. Never yeah. Seen, you've seen mm-hmm. that? And mm-hmm. he's the uh, the corrupt Monsignor or whatever it is, Archbishop. And he's fantastic in it. It was he's banned a, for impressed. many years. It was banned yes. for many years. And then finally it, it came out. I saw it on Shudder had it, which is a great uh, streaming service. Jeff, I love that you know that film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know my I I am, you know, as much as I love music and I'm kind of like a a music nerd, I am I'm a filmmaker and I love cinema and I love films and I love old films, too, man. I like I watch it all. I've actually I've actually really started educating myself on like some noir stuff and like uh, what did I I watched uh, this Halloween. I always try to watch new stuff on Halloween. I watched the very first Wax Museum film from 1932. Oh, uh, Lionel Atwill. Yes. Yes. And that I got to tell you, man. And you know what's great about watching those old movies is like, you know, it takes you to this this different time and place. And it's like, I don't know. It's like it's like another layer of being transferred into a different world, because not only are you in the fictional story, but you're in a fictional story that's being told from another time and another mindset. Right. Yes, and I, as I recall, that movie is shot in like a two-process early color. Yes. And Faye Ray is also in it. Yeah, Faye Ray is in it. And yes, that was an early, that was an early, wow, yes, that was a two-color process before, it was before, um, I think it was before Technicolor, uh, of, yes. like officially made its debut with uh, Wizard of Oz, right? I think so. I believe so. And, and Beyond um, with the Wind, the same year, I think, both 1939. Yeah. Right, which I mean, the two biggest innovations, and I don't know if you've seen, and I you have to see if you haven't seen it. Have you seen Babylon? I have not. Uh, you would love it. You would love it because it kind of, I mean, it talks about it. It, it really, you know, it shows the shift from silent films into talky films. It's kind of like, you know, what it's kind of like. It's kind of like, uh, in the same way that like Boogie Nights doesn't actually it's not based it's based on real stuff but Mm -hmm. it's a fictionalized story this is all based on real stuff from the 20s and 30s but it's like a fictionalized version of it you know is this this the uh margot robbie movie that's out yes yes Yes. brad pitt uh check it out you gotta see it you i don't want to say anything about it just that as a as a as a fan if you're if you're into this stuff and as i can see you're into the stuff you will have a, a deep appreciation for that um another film that you kind of so your character kind of reminds me of this too a little bit in my opinion um this is this is kind of like my own hot take you tell me what you think of this in a weird kind of way i think the first you know all the universal the universal cycle but in general the monster cycle thematically is Mm -hmm. always about like beauty and the beast right like the uh like a monster and like a, a lady and the monster is actually human inside and it's people who are the evil monster right that like that sort of overarching theme are you going to reference the french jean cocteau beauty and the beat la belle yeah, and la yeah yeah i am yep yep, yep. That, an image of them was almost on the back of this uh studies in scarlet cd that was in the uh drawing board but we we pulled it for uh my friend Argyle came up with a, a better alternative using the Oliver Reed eyes. That is my, that is like, it's not my favorite movie, but like, it's like one, I like adore, I adore this film. 
adore it. Love I'll it tell so you much. a secret. Long time ago, I had a film minor. And the other thing is we can talk about some other time, but I spent about uh, 10 years in and out of uh, independent films and a few major films. Oh, I did not know that. Okay, so you, so you you know your stuff. I got John of Doom here. He's saying, does Larry know if Lon Chaney really used chicken wire behind his eyeballs to make them bulge out for Phantom? Not, that, I'm not sure that that's so. I know he used something. I thought it was uh, some type of. I thought he used uh, spirit gum to hold it back, but I'm not sure. Uh, and that's he also, one of those things. You, or, I don't know if it's an urban legend or true that he used wire or something in his nose to flare the nostrils and push it up. I mean, he he was he was using. He says that blood is the harvest is awesome as well. Um, the uh, he he used to. I mean, he used to. He used all sorts of techniques that that just tortured himself, like for the sake of the movie, you know, or I, movies. I think at that time it was called Mortician's Wax. Uh, right, was they called it at that time was became later nose putty or Stein's putty, whatever you call it. Yeah. I, I have mean, seen the the the, uh, the uh, makeup kit because years ago, as you probably heard on, the, on this intro of this, we have Forey Ackerman. He recorded for me in '97, and of course, I first met first met Forey in '93 at a convention. And he had the the Lon Chaney makeup kit in it. it. Was it was an awesome thing to see? That that is an awesome thing to see. Um, Wait, what was I about to say? Not about not about Lon Chaney. We're talking about the make. Oh, about just in the same way that, like, you know, in the same way that whether he used chicken wire or not, or whatever he was using, his techniques. I mean, you had uh who's the guy? Pierce, the guy who built Jack up Pierce. Uh, Jack Pierce. I mean, yes, Jack sir. Pierce every day, Boris Karloff would sit for hours because Jack Pierce had to make up that skull, that 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 chop top whatever you want to call it, the flat top. He had mm -hmm. to make up that flat top from scratch and he built it up with like cotton balls and putty and all sorts of jazz. Amazing. amazing. I, it, truly amazing. But like, it's just crazy to think that like, you know, if, if it was just a little bit more down the line that he would find a way to like, you know, that people would like, you know, you create molds and stuff. And it just was before that time. They just didn't think that way. You know? Yeah. I, I think by the time they're doing uh mid forties, I want to say by the time they're doing, uh, the, you know, the house film, the monster rally films. And uh, I think in particular on Abner Costello make Frankenstein. I think by that time they are using some pre-made appliances with, uh, with his face, as you can see, it changes. It doesn't have quite as much, much expression as it does in the first two. Right. Right. I mean, those first two are just unreal. Um, but to get back to uh, La Belle et La Bette, that Beauty and the Beast film, I think Beauty and the Beast, my hot take is that Beauty and the Beast is the first universal horror movie. It, you know, even just from like a story standpoint, like all of it, you know, you it's like the Beauty and the Beast kind of template in, in that same sort of dynamic. And that's why that film, even though it comes out in 47, which is you know, it's like kind of a decade late from the first cycle of, of universal horror films mm -hmm, still mm -hmm. feels like a, it's like a French universal horror film to me. I don't know a little bit. I agree. And I, I think, uh, I, I think they were sparse in their films. Well, it's, it's a great fantasy film. Yeah. Uh, but I think they made eyes without a face in France about 10 years after that. Seven, yes. eight years later. 59, uh, 59 okay. or 60. Okay. I mean, I, this, there's great much film. Of, oh, it is. And there's a lot of, uh, that, uh, Cocteau film with I remember the the arms holding yes the candelabras the candelabras out of the yeah. wall and yeah. I think that Roman Polanski borrows that 
for repulsion with Catherine Deneuve in 61 or 62, whenever that was made, because she has the scene where she feels the walls are closing in about her and groping her, and there are all the arms coming out. I have no doubt Polanski was influenced by Cocteau and Beauty and the Beast. But isn't that just in the same way as like with music? That's the beauty of like art in general, whether it's film, whether it's painting or whether it's music, where you take something that came before and it inspires you to sort of like carry it onward and like incorporate it with your own flavor in your own kind of way, doing your own thing. And that's how like you get you get like interesting things like in this in the sense that I always like to use the analogy of the Ramones who were like, they heard like, you know, the Ronettes and the Beach Boys and like the Stooges. And then that's what, she, and you get stuff like yeah. Sheena is a punk rocker. You know what I mean? I, like, I will tell you, I have a, a dear friend of mine, Metal Greg, and, I, and we have a discussion on this all the time because I always tell him to me, and the Ramones are great, but I always tell him to me, they're power pop. They sound like the Archies to me because my kids, I'd let them hear Sheena is a punk rocker when they were little driving around in the car mm -hmm. and along with sugar, sugar from the Archies or uh, something from the Partridge family or whatever, dizzy by Tommy Rowe. It falls right into there. In yeah. Now, would I let them listen to bodies or <laughs> EMI, sex pistols when they're four years old? Probably not. That's real punk rock to me. You know, gotcha. Just, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, alone, yeah. But that's power pop to me. You know, I, I will, I'll push the envelope a little bit further for you. And apart from the subject matter, because obviously subject matter is different, but apart from the subject matter, I would say the same thing about like walk among us, man, like walk among us with like some of oh. that, not, not, you know, maybe not like earth AD and most certainly not like Sam Hain or anything, but like there is a lot of misfits that has a lot of sort of pop hook, catchy oh. anthemic, you know, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jeff, to me, it's all about the hook. That's it. It's all about the hook. Now, it's also about the groove. I love Grant. I'm a big Grand Funk Railroad fan. And, um, you know, that, that was hooks, but it's more about groove. Um, but I love hooks. Things you sing along to. And I remember the very first time I heard Walk Among Us, that was the thing I came away with. I said, and, and I mean this as a complete compliment to, to Glenn Danzig, who I think is one of the great singers and songwriters we've had in, in many, many years. He's phenomenally talented, but I thought this guy sounds like a, a more muscular, powerful Jim Morrison when I first heard Walk Among Us, but with melody and with short, you know, powerful songs. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, wait, oh, no, I keep forgetting. I keep trying to like hold my, my next thought in my head uh because as i as i as i listen to you and then i and then it slips out of the back door and i forgot what i was going to say next um not talking about walk among us talking about we we're talking about pops we're talking about oh yeah uh uh freaking burn witch burn that brings me to burn witch burn i want to ask you a question about this this is my favorite manimal song this is my this is this is like in constant rotation you decided to remake this song for horrorcore you did burn witch burn 2000 and you change the arrangement you you know the something in the air only comes kind of like at like the break uh at uh, later in the song which i think is good because in i mean i like both versions but i think like it, it has far more punch it has far more punch when you like leave it for the end in the same way that like you have that break in last caress right 
Like you, it, sure. it, it, it's sort of, sure. you know, you need silence. You need, you need loud sound or music is not just sound, but it's also silence. You need those dynamic pauses and you, it has more impact when you just save it in the end, instead of having it more repetitive in the original one. What made you decide to change that? First of all, thank you. I'm honored that you put that in that same category or mentioned the same breath. I will tell you a song that's like that very, very much to me is uh, you gave me a mountain, the Marty Robbins song that Elvis uh, made the greatest version of because every version oh. that Elvis does is the best. And he builds up to it. And at the end, he says, you gave me a mountain. And he, and he climbs the note. I'm not going to uh, attempt to do anything that Elvis has done. But um, okay. So here's what happened. You ever work with people collaboratively that you come up with an idea and instead of them just working with you through your idea as good teammates are supposed to do, they want to drop in their thing so they can say they participated in the writing? Of course. Okay. <laughs> All right. So that was that bridge that I never cared for, that I had a, a member at the time who was belly ache and he had to have that part in i really it was really just to say we co-wrote it we wrote that no i had a finished song <laughs> i had somebody so i i i i conceded i said all right we'll throw it in there and it always bothered me because i compromised on it and what you heard about a, the in the way we re-recorded it was the way it was meant that was the way i had written it originally so it always bothered it works me. better man it does it does work better. That's why I prefer that right. version. I like both. I really do like both, but that's the version that always sticks with me because it just has more impact at the end like that. That's... Well, thank you. And and what happens is it's funny because I, I, when I, anything I've done, I don't know if you do this with your film work, Jeff, but anything I've created, I don't, I, I only obsess on the things that I didn't get right in it. Oh, I, so it makes me, it's very hard for me to enjoy anything I've done. I have to do it and put it aside because all I hear are the things that I should have fixed. And uh, so I guess when I listen to it, I, now that I have a little bit of uh, uh, some years between the first and the second, I can look at it now and say, well, that's 20, I don't know, 23 year old me versus 37 or 38 year old me. Wow. Um, yeah, you, what you're speaking to, what you're all the things you're speaking to, what you said before about someone else needing to just do, you know, they need to add a little detail so that they can, you know, feel own part ownership of whatever, you know, the the thing is, as well as uh, just sort of like dwelling on uh, all the imperfections that typically only you can hear or see yourself. Nobody else. And I'm not talking about you particularly. I mean, like in a generalization in general, nobody ever hears. It's the, the audience or the people that take in the art. They never notice. It's just the creators, us creators. We hear, we see. And, you know, I, one of my favorite um, philosophies in regards to making any kind of art, unless it's like doing like a podcast, if you consider that art, because once you're done with it, you're done with it. Uh, especially if you're doing it live, like we are live on the internet, which is like, I love doing cause it's kind of like a performance. Um, but you know, it's not so much as you finish something as you walk away and abandon it. Because if you don't walk away, you will just, it's like, like with mixing, I, I, I do a lot of, I mix for movies. I, I don't mix for music, but let me tell you something. 
if I didn't have a deadline to get my 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 last movie into the film festival it was in, I would have probably I'd probably still be mixing it now. And mm-hmm. it's like you you have to get to this place where you're like, okay, the deadline is here. This is as good as it's going to be. If I keep doing this, I'm never going to make anything else. I'm just going to keep spinning my wheels. And what ends up happening is I'm so focused on making it sound better somehow. I, all I'm doing is I'm just scribbling. It's not. You know, I, I get you because it's interesting. The last independent movie I, I worked on was done here in Northeast Ohio, and it has stalled out in the sound editing. That's so what happens, man. There's a, there's a fantastic trailer on YouTube. It's called Tomorrow's Tomorrow Echoes. Okay, and, I'm that uh, down. it is uh, the I saw the rough cut. It was outstanding, but it has been bogged down. I think in the sound editing. The gentleman doing it is a fabulous guy, and he's a perfectionist. And I said to him, you know, it's that. What's the old saying? Don't let the pursuit of, of perfect get in the way of good, or very good in the way of good, or whatever. It's one saying. of those. One of those yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. But it's yeah, easy yeah. to get caught right. up in that. I mean, it only took me, you know, ten or fifteen years from the first EP to the to the horror course. He didn't. It took me another. And I promised me, I said, it will not take me another fifteen years. It took me another twenty. <laughs> <laughs> It, you know, it, it, it is, it is what it is. I'll tell you something I'm currently preparing. I just wrote uh, what I'm hoping will be my third feature film. And I've decided I'm going to do something a little bit different. And I wrote the thing. I waited until I had written it. And then I, instead of, uh, you know, keeping it a secret, I'm sort of going to do the reverse because what typically happens is, you know, with, 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 when you don't have all the resources you need to do it the way that you hope that you can do it, uh, you end up making cuts and sacrificing set you sacrifice on your vision just to get it done. And um, I kind of want the complete vision uh, to be preserved before I go down that path. So I'm actually sort of doing a, an audio play of this, of this screenplay for that specific reason. It's like, I'm not waiting. I'm not waiting until because it'll probably be a year at least before I can even think about shooting this movie. I'm like, I'm not waiting. No one else is going to try and make this idea. I'm the only one that I know who would do it the way that I would want to do it. So I'm not really concerned about like any of that nonsense. Nobody gives a shit about what I do. It's I'm just going to do. I'm so what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to do an audio play version right here on the channel. And uh, I have uh, some people that are going to do it. So it's kind of going to just be like table reading. And we're going to try and uh, it's going to be kind of like an audio play. And then the complete vision will be untouched. So no matter what I carve away, no matter what I, you know, uh, make compromises on, I know that that original idea exists in some way, shape or form. So we'll see what happens. We will see what happens. Um, Best of luck with Thank you. Uh, let me ask you, I want to know, I, and we'll take some questions. I see Ramey is in the audience and Tyler. Um, I, I want to ask you about your mantle. What the hell is this thing? I've seen picture every time I've seen like a picture of you on the internet or whatever, or what, you know, that might actually that performance of you guys at Wacken doing burn, Witch burn. I just I love oh. that video. I've watched it a bunch of times. What the hell are you wearing, dude? What is this thing? What? Oh, this yeah, what is this thing? This. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> all right. So I will tell you. I will tell you. I saw again. You know, I'm a comic book. I'm a comic book guy from way back. As a me too. Fact, I love comics. Oh. But go ahead. Yeah, continue. Here's Sorry. a few I just picked up recently. A nice 
Let me Fantastic see. Four. Oh, what what uh is that? That's, that's obviously Stan Lee, right? Uh, yeah, Stanley, Jack Kirby, Joe Sinnott. Oh my that's God, number uh, seventy-five. That's a, I'm, I'm big on eight point five. That's a good price points uh, to me. Of course, here you got I'm doing right now. Every Spider-Man fan knows this is this is the comic Death of. Gwen Let me see. I can't see it. I can't see it. Oh, the Death of Gwen. St I'm sorry. I got my. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. the Death of Gwen Stacy. Very yep. important event. Yep. And then everyone and John Romita, who's my favorite. Uh, and then, of course, I just pick up odd stuff I like once in a while. An old 60s copy of Top Cat. Top Cat. Top Cat. All right. All uh, right. Now I digress. What did I get on with Spider-Man? We were just Earth comic books. What were we just uh, talking about? Oh, man. I lost. Uh, we were talking about. Oh, no. Your, your mantle. The, the, the oh, remember, okay. The, okay. The, the, so, the you know, in the, in the, in the 80s, it, it's funny. Uh, you know. First couple of shows we played in the hardcore era, late 82, early 83. I mean, we had a stupid outfit. I mean, it was just terrible. I was trying to figure out what to do. Uh, the other guys in the band, great guys, but they weren't sure about doing this. It didn't quite work with the hardcore thing. Um, but I wanted to do what I wanted to do. So then we came in like 84, we started wearing these flak jackets, like motocross flak jackets with fur on them, and we burst out of cages. We had giant cages on the stage anyway. <laughs> Well, pretty cool, and they were underlit, so we did flash bombs and all that other shit, and uh, it was cool. Then when we came back the, the last time, I I looked at it and uh, I love the character Craven the Hunter. I love Craven the Hunter. Okay, this is inspired by Craven the Hunter. I, here, I like guys. That look. Here's here's Larry in the thing. You're gonna see it in this video right here. Go ahead, Larry. I, I muted it, but keep talking. Oh, yeah. Keep talking. So and and I'm wearing uh, actually at that show that's our last show that was the, that was a good way to end. Usually I wore gloves for thirty some years, but I had gotten uh, my wife got me a nice pair of uh, replica 1968 Elvis comeback special leather wrist wraps that wow. were uh, from Graceland in 2011. I'd gotten uh, the year before, so I wore those there. But yeah, this was you know to me that was what inspired. I wanted when we came back in uh, Craven the Hunter, of course, ninety nine. Yeah. yeah, with uh, with uh, horrorcore, uh, we wanted to get rid of the cages. We came out with a, we had a whole cemetery set, and I had uh, our drummer Dark, who was super creative guy, could build anything. He built, uh, drew up a, a thing where we had uh, cemetery gates. He made these things like they weren't like uh, what do you call scrims. These were we had to break our backs moving these things around because he he builds houses. He was an interesting guy. He's a doctor, so he was a physician. Went to medical school. Also built houses, and he built these all our props like they were meant to be on a foundation. So we had these giant uh, Ken Strick Fadden esque lightning towers that wow. were true with the beginning and end of the of the set. It was really cool, and I wanted to do a whole reset. I didn't want to revisit what we had done in the eighties. So part of that was coming up with a new, you know, a modified look or an evolved look for myself. My father in law, who's a super talented guy, restores old cars. Now, I'm not talking about 65 Mustangs that a lot of people do. I'm talking about 32 Rolls Royces. Wow. Old uh, ja Jaguar XKEs, things like that. And they had, and he does the leather and everything else. So he he uh, fabricated this for me from piece of leather, put the stays in it. And uh, <laughs> I showed him a picture of Craven the Hunter and uh, we figured it out. So it's it's been around for about 25 years. It's indestructible. 
Oh, it's freaking awesome. I was about to say, I was going to guess. I thought it was like a foot. It almost looks like football pads underneath. But what you just said makes it so much cooler, man. I mean, it really is rad. It's just like this thing. And I, I would have never, I just didn't occur to me. Craven the Hunter, of course. Yeah. And I was um, that yeah, go ahead. playing there. I had to leave because traveling to Germany, I couldn't put the head on it. That's yeah. my 78 Gibson Grabber with the sliding pickup that I've played for many, many years. But I had a giant gargoyle head mounted on the top of it. Oh, let me see. I can't. There's the wow. head. Look at that. There's thing. that same base. Wait, hold on. Wait, go back to the head again because your 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 video froze up for a split second. Let me see. Wow. They extend that thing by. I mean, Gibson grabbers are. <laughs> it's a heavy base. If if I put it this way, say, how heavy is that? Because they were too heavy for him. And he went to those other little bases that, uh, what do you call it? A Nobu base, wherever it was he played. This thing weighs a ton, but it was an awesome base, great sound. And that didn't make its way to Germany with us. It was too big. Uh, yeah, I mean, and plus it would probably, it could get, it'd probably get like damaged or something under the plane or, uh, you know, in luggage or some way. I know that's always like a headache for uh, musicians and, and stuff in that kind of way. Um so when it comes to kiss are you like or and i have a spider-man question i have i have a spider-man question for you and i i have another question for you but um when it comes to kiss are you are you like one of those kiss guys that's like everything or are you like die hard like original lineup like 70s kiss or where where does your fandom with kiss lie i'm like a very casual listener of a couple of the, the hits like love gun and Black Diamond and yada, yada, yada. That, that's where I be begin and end. But where do you, where does your fandom lie when it comes to Kiss? Well, let me think about it. <laughs> I'll put it this way. I used to keep, because I collected comic books and different things, I always kept my stuff very nice. So I had all that Kiss stuff, those ma grooves, magazines, the fold-out posters, all that stuff. My, You know, the, the, those uh, mega-sized posters. I I've gotten rid of almost everything. I sold it off to collectors these past five years who were serious collectors that wanted stuff. It's all about the condition, Jeff. You know, right, of course, condition. of course. And I had great stuff in it all. So I've sold off most of the stuff I've kept are the things that meant something to me. The very first concert I ever went to was September of 76. I saw Kiss on the uh, Spirit of 76 Destroyer Tour. And I begged the guy around the corner because I wasn't old enough to drive yet. And uh, they played... Richfield Coliseum in September of 76 with Artful Dodger opening. Elvis played his last show in Northeast Ohio a month later. It sold out. I couldn't get anybody to take me to that because, again, I couldn't drive mm. yet. Um, so I missed the king. But uh, I keep the tour program from that first thing because the first time I, I saw them, I'm going to tell you, they were the greatest live band I've ever seen. Nobody to touch them when they were in their 20s with that yeah. set, with the Gothic theme, with Simmons in the castle turret. People who saw it, what happened was everybody, most people were introduced to them on the 78 uh, uh, Love Gun or Alive 2 tour with the big staircases. And it was all very lit up. Or they saw them in 79 on the Dynasty tour, which was on a big white stage. It looked like it was more uh, designed for the band Angel, who was big at the time on Casablanca Records. I couldn't, They it got to be very Vegasy. I loved them, but it wasn't the same. That first time I saw them, and then again in 83, I saw them twice on the Creatures of the Night tour. And they'd already, it was too little too late, but they were great at that time. They had I gotten will say this. A, a real band, not being a kid's band.
I will say this. I've what we've done. We've done, you know, sometimes we watch videos on YouTube. Like we was just watching, uh, 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 you guys doing burn, which burn and whatnot. And I got to tell you, there is this DVD of kit. There's this DVD of kiss without their makeup on from, I think it was the animalized tour. And I got to tell you, like I said, I, I don't know. I don't even know like a quarter of the songs, but I love watching them live because they they still like they're just given 150 percent without that makeup on they're like they're jumping around they got they're doing the 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 synchronized thing with the mm-hmm. guitar necks yeah. and you know yeah. it's like it 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 rides the edge of cheesy and cool like you know yeah. like it's almost so goofy but at the same time it's like really cool to watch them do this thing in like synchronized way it just kind of i don't know why it works but it kind of works and i like watching it i oh, can't no oh, it, it's they were cool and i'll tell you why well, everybody wants to see the end of deuce with da 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 right da, right da, da, the the black diamond down. that that right. part in black diamond where yeah. where they get down on their knees and gene just goes that's cool man that was from 75 there's there's a great video of them on youtube from 75 where where they're doing it i mean this is what is like the two years into being kiss and you just you could see where they were about to go uh when they reached that 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 kiss fever in in the late 70s yes well that's why i say when i saw them that first time i they were they were still young enough and they were hungry enough. They were playing with the energy of the 75, but with the staging that was spectacular. I mean, it was it was absurd. It was dark. It was gloomy. That's why there's so very little uh, video that's good of it that was shot. But what's interesting, what you just mentioned about the synchronized movie, I think there was a fellow by the name of, uh, and my uh, my buddy uh, Tim Drail, Orlock, will uh he will uh he's the monster energy guy he has the job he goes around with all the monster energy girls oh, to the cool. rock shows so wow he, he's the, he was the guitar player for a long time wonderful guy um he uh will he'll correct me if i'm wrong i think it was a fellow by the name of sean delaney with kiss who was responsible for helping with a lot of that choreography but oh, i'll tell really? you when i was a little kid i saw a band on tv that blew my mind. And in the way it's kiss esque, I saw this band wearing revolutionary soldier outfits stand with the bass player and the guitar player standing on top of their amps. And then during the courses, they would go up and down with the, with the guitar next. It was Paul Revere and the Raiders. Oh, the, uh, that that's the, um, the nuggets band, right? They're on nuggets. I think, uh, I don't They were on some, they were on some TV show in the, I mean, the I was 60s, very, very little. Yeah. yeah, but they were that was from the 60s, I think. Yeah, yeah like the house band. And then right. you know, they had kicks and, and they had uh then uh, they when they lost the outfits they put out Indian Reservation in 1970 or 71, which was a massive, massive hit. Mark Lindsay went on to have the hit Arizona, which was a big hit from but when I first saw them when I was very little, they had those outfits on. You know, I saw Beatle cartoons, but that didn't look cool to me. But I saw those right. guys, and they had these cool boots on, and they were they were they looked aggressive with the necks going up and down, and they're standing on their amps, and they had these hooks. You know, that's when I first saw Kiss. They remind me a tiny bit of Paul Revere and the Raiders. Huh. Interesting. I mean, there is something flashy about that choreography. I mean, even look at like again to go back to the Ramones, just the simple act of pushing up like guitar and bass 
flanking lead singer and pushing up to the front of the stage and then pulling back. And even Jerry and Doyle were sure. doing that in like 82, 83. You oh, know, yeah. my, my, my misfits fanaticism is like uh, uh, akin to a, a kiss fanatic in, in the same sure. way. I just don't, you know, so I understand it. I understand yeah. the kiss fanaticism. I just, it just doesn't click for me yeah. personally. However, I will say this. One of my all-time favorite movies. I have a lot of movies that I just love. Like, I don't have a singular favorite movie. Although, if you're pressed to ask me and you want to twist my arm, I would say Night of the Living Dead 1968. But I have a lot of movies that I friggin' love. One of them is actually Detroit Rock City. And I'm very curious to know how you feel as a KISS fan about Detroit Rock City. Do you like it? Do you hate it? What do you think? I have to confess to you. I know of it. I've never watched it. Oh, Larry. I'm not see it. Jeff, I have to tell you, I was a gigantic Kiss fan when I was 14, 15, yeah, 16, but 12, I was 23. Hey, look, this was spectacular. Back in its day when this came out, this was a game changer. Right. Kiss Is that alive? That's alive. It was alive. a game yeah. changer. But yeah. then I got older and I realized you grew this out of was it. a manufactured live album. Yes, it this, was. This Grand Funk live album was an authentic, real live right. album. It right. was pure. And in fact, the fella who recorded this remotely, uh, Ken Heyman, mm -hmm. he worked for Cleveland because these guys were from Flint, Michigan. They came down and recorded that Cleveland recording. Ken Heyman went on the road with them and he recorded them at Shea Stadium. And I think it was uh, uh, Tampa, Florida, maybe where these tracks came from. His son, and then he made money off. The, he opened up a place called Summa Recording. Many of the bands in Northeast Ohio recorded there. So I recorded with his son, Ken Heyman, was what oh, the blood cool. is the harvest, was the son of the guy. So we walk through the hallway and we see the gold records there of Grand Funk Railroad and James Gang. I don't care about the James Gang, but uh, that's not my taste. But I saw Grand Funk. And in fact, I will tell you, I don't fancy myself much of a bassist. I punish the bass. Uh, like I punish the vocals. But I will tell you. And when I walked in there, I started, I'm 23 years old. I, I didn't know what the hell I'm doing. And uh, I start plugging my stuff in, and he comes over to me and gives me a funny look. And I said, oh, am I, is something wrong? And he says, you want me to change something? He goes, no, no, no. I like what you're doing. It's it's wild. He said, you remind me of Mel Shacker from Grand Funk. Oh. I haven't heard anybody whose bass sounded quite like that. Because oh. I, I, I put a lot of distortion on it, and I played it with a pick, and I played it like, you know, that was my influence, more so than Gene Simmons, was Mel um. Shacker. I have to I have to acknowledge this comment real quick, um, and I'm going to tell a story only because Ramey brings this up. I was thinking of I was going to say this story to you or not, but I guess I'll tell it now as well. Ramey says, uh, Jeff, fun fact, Ace Freely lives near us. My mom was friends with his sister-in-law, and I used to go to school with his nephew. Used to bump into him at Sam Ash and White Plains and was at barbecues with him. So I used to know Monique, his daughter. Oh, okay. And what what one day I was introduced, uh, I was I was out somewhere. I was in White Plains, the place where Ramey is talking about. And I was introduced uh, to a man named Paul. And um, I was like, hey, how you doing, Paul? You know, I was sitting next to him, whatever. No big deal. Um, and th this was probably I want to say this was 2004, 2005 at the dawn, like the height of like VH1 like music programming. Remember when everybody was like watching VH1 and all the behind the musics and stuff. This was like the peak of that. And a program came on 
called When Kiss Ruled the World. And there was that guy, Paul, except it what his name wasn't Paul. His name was Ace Freely. Ace Freely. I was like, oh, I was like, holy shit. Well, that, that's the like, thing. Yeah, that was crazy. Stanley that was crazy. Stanley Eisen. And yes, Ace I know. Actually, Paul Freely. You know, I got to tell you, and I, you know, whatever, however controversial, whatever, not, not to, I don't, not to dwell on any controversy. I just want to say that I have a great respect, love them or, you know, they can be polarizing amongst fans. Uh, I have a great respect for both Gene Simmons and uh, Paul Stanley in the sense that um, these guys were not only go-getters. Well, I mean, Gene Simmons is like, I mean, Jim, Gene Simmons' story is an incredible story. If you're familiar with this yes. history, yes, it's an incredible, incredible story. But you know, equally as impressive is Paul Stanley. Dude's born without an ear, gets made fun of his whole friggin' life, and like somehow like overcomes overcomes like all of that to you know go out there and just you know rock people's faces off. You know, he's like, I want to be the Phantom and Phantom of the Opera because I like that stuff. He just did it. You know what I mean? Like just stuff like that. And I just, I don't know. I, I got to say, I really do admire that even when, even if I'm not a, a ginormous Kiss fan, I, I really appreciate that, the, yeah. those aspects. There was magic with those four guys together and even in different variations. I mean, yeah, I mean, I what what Gene accomplished coming here with his mother. Unbelievable. He's learning the language. I mean, it's just abandoned mother in that era. Yeah. And to come over here and learn the language mm -hmm. and everything. And I, you know, I'm from New York City, and uh, that's the big jungle. And I, those guys, I, I give them all a lot of credit. That was destiny. Wait, wait, wait. You're from, you know why I knew you were from New York City, honestly? Because of the way you talk. I'm like, this guy doesn't sound like he's from Ohio at all. <laughs> you don't. I was like, what? I was like, this guy's. A this guy's from the Midwest. This guy doesn't sound like he's from the Midwest. No, I never heard you talk before. That's I, crazy. I was an unwilling hostage to uh, being moved <laughs> out here when I was a kid. <laughs> now I'm I'm originally from the Bronx, and um, you sure sound like it. You really do. That's funny. <laughs> well, not not that when I talk to my relatives back east, yeah. I'll tell you, I don't sound. They you know they probably think I sound like absolutely Midwest, but I've been here for a right. long. And I lived in my my four best years uh, growing up as a kid. We're in a place called Old Tapan, New Jersey, uh, upper part of New Jersey, across from the George Bergen? Washington. Yep, Bergen, Bergen yeah. County for sure. Yeah, yep. my mom's from Teaneck, and okay. I live in. I'm from Westchester, New York, so and that's where I am right now. So, like, you know, so we're all all relative, all relative. You know, that was the um, best year. I absolutely loved them. We got moved out here. It was supposed to be for a year when I was a kid, and here I am. It's been a great place to raise a family. And my kids and my wife are awesome. I wouldn't have met them if I stayed back east. But I've never feel I've never felt completely at home here. I mean, that's what happened. I mean, you, you 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 take the guy out of New York, but you can't take New York out of the guy. It's just but that's not uh, my home either anymore. It's different. Sure, of course. I mean, like you know, at at some point, you, you know, this is going to sound really cheesy, and it is really cheesy, but it's true. Home really is wherever you are, in a yes. way. Like you make a place. You, you stay at a place and you feel comfortable in a place like, you know, you, you grow to enjoy a place. That's your home. Like, yes, you can yes. come from somewhere and yes, never forget who you are, where you're from and all these things. But at the end of the day, that's, you know, 
that's that's the truth. I want to change gears on you for a minute. I just want to. I'm asking all all this whole episode is just me asking his opinion on things, Larry's Larry's opinion on things. But I genuinely want to know. I was talking with Erie Vaughn from Sam Hain and Danzig, and I asked him. He hadn't seen it yet. Um, I had just seen it, the Elvis movie. What did you think of being? Because you seem like a real Elvis aficionado. Once again, another guy who I know some stuff about, but not really. In fact, you, Larry. Don't judge me, but the first time that I heard, what is that? Is that the is that the Blu-ray? I can't. This see. is Elvis, Prince from Another Planet. This is when oh. they uh, reissued all four of the nineteen seventy-two Madison Square Garden shows. Unheard of. Four sold-out shows in three days. I so, digress. Continue. No, 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 Jeff. no. But but so, what did you think? What did you think of the movie? What did you think of him as Elvis? How did how did that all work for you? I was prepared. Thank you for asking me that. I was prepared to hate it. Yeah. I really was. Yeah. I love it. And I went back to see it uh, numerous I times. Yeah. I went back, I think, five times. Now, the issues I have with it, there, I have a lot of issues with it. Sure. I would imagine. It would be crazy if you didn't. I would the imagine. First, the first piece of it, in everything now with films, as you're a filmmaker, everything's about franchises. Yeah. The perfect franchise. This was a three. This was a trilogy. It should have been a trilogy. They should have. Boz Lorman's spectacularly talented. It could have been. Um, I love his version of Great Gatsby, Moulin Rouge. They're terrific. He was a he was perfect choice for this or this. I'm glad he developed. Could not agree more. Could not agree more. Um, his vision is wonderful. His attention to detail, getting the the period correct amps. Mm -mm. You know, it is just. You know, Jerry Schiff's bass amp was odd. I forget what brand he had. He had to have that amp, at least the case to make it look like it. Uh, period correct Gatorade bottles. All this detail was phenomenal. Um, but it should have been a trilogy. It's too big of a story to tell in three hours. It didn't capture the... And there's so many P S things that are important to who Elvis was that are missed. One of the biggest things that's missed with him was his philanthropy. Mm, and I did not know about piece. that. Well, Danny Thomas, when we were trying to get St. Jude's Children's Hospital off the ground in Memphis, he went to Elvis Presley. When they were trying to get the USS Arizona Pearl Harbor Memorial built, they went to Elvis Presley. Um, he gave his, and all the untold stories. The first time I went to Graceland before it was overhauled, there was a section before they redid it and they created the welcome, Elvis Presley's Graceman, Graceland exhibit across the street. You went through this section. It was lined. Everything was wallpaper of canceled checks of charities he had made donations to just in his first year. Wow. And the minute the man made any money, he was giving constantly. Um, it, it, that's lost. And I think that's an important piece because nobody else is like that. Um, I didn't know all that. I did not know that. Let me ask you this question. This is This might be a little controversial, but I'm curious to know. Uh, another question I was, or as I was talking with Erie in conversation, Erie is a huge Elvis fan as well. And, and I was, you know, I was trying to like, you know, tout the little knowledge that I thought I had about Elvis and he corrected me and I wasn't, I was pretty sure I was right on this. And, you know, listen, he's, he's way more well-versed in Elvis than I am. So what do I know? But I'm curious to hear what you, cause you really also, you're clearly an Elvis guy. Is it, you know, Elvis was no Elvis. It's known that Elvis didn't write songs, but he was a great arranger of music. And yes. it's my understanding that he had an arrangement like where he would, you know, he would take a song and that 
he would he would take 50% of the publishing and he would give 50% to the songwriter, which in turn, because Elvis was covering the song, would be way more money than that songwriter probably would ever see without Elvis covering it. Is this was there any kind of arrangement like that, or is that just completely fictitious and not no, true? I, I, that's that's certainly truth that I don't think it was in, and that's why his material started to decline. But, Interesting, yeah, but it, what that's not him doing that. That's the colonel. Oh, it's the colonel. So you have your mechanical rights, then you have your your publishing and your songwriting credits and all that stuff. That's the colonel's angle. That's why uh, Dolly Parton held out. I will always love you. Yeah, she sure did. <laughs> now, I will she tell sure you, did. she had the conviction to do that. Yeah. Uh, because she could sing it. Most people, I, I, I had an opportunity to go. I went to the uh, 40th anniversary of his passing. My wife and I went to Grace on the second time we were there in 2017. And we did the candlelight visual. We went up. It took us, I think, seven and a half, almost eight hours to walk up from the from. Elvis Presley Boulevard to go up. Wow. Their respects. It was, but it was magnificent. People from all over the world gathered together. But during that, I got a chance to go to a show, uh, a songwriter showcase with Mark James, who wrote Suspicious Minds, Hooked on a Feeling. Wow. Uh, Jerry, uh, Mike Lieber, who's from Lieber and Stoller. He's still yes. alive. That, I, yeah, that, and, I um, and uh, Mac Davis, who was still alive at that time. Every one of them said the greatest compliment the greatest miracle you could pull off as a songwriter was to have Elvis Presley record your song that was it right so we knew you it's that whole concept of getting a little bit of a lot or right. getting all of something very small now right. Mark James recorded suspicious minds himself it sold three records okay right he didn't sell anything <laughs> yes. so, now, Mac Davis had a, a pretty big career when I was a kid. He was on TV, had TV shows, he was in movies, had a variety. He had hit records. But he even knew. He said, are you kidding me? He said, if I could get Elvis Presley to sing this, he wrote Little Less Conversation. He said, I wrote that for Aretha Franklin. They came to me for a movie. He says, no, nah, I forget it. I got an opportunity. It's going Elvis. Bob Dylan, who's not exactly my taste, has, has famously said, what was the greatest compliment you ever received? And he said, greatest thing was when Elvis Presley recorded one of my songs. So crazy. I, you know, I, that whole thing with the publishing, but it's funny because Dolly Parton still talks about that 50 years later. So, you know, whatever money she made years later, she would have made, she'd still be making a gargantuan amount and, and she would have been attached to him really? forever and not have to tell the story. People would be asking her about it rather than her having to tell people about well, it. Well, what's interesting, it is kind of, it is kind of funny in that she, she did hold out and we all, everybody knows what ended up happening with that song. And here's my only question. What, and obviously this is just a, what if scenario it just like, just like Marvel does the, what if that's something we love yes. doing on, <laughs> that's something we love doing yes. on, uh, on this uh, show. If so, if she has Elvis record it, does Whitney Houston, record it meaning like do you think sure. it still has that so then she would have made i mean she made a lot of money but she would have made even more money you know yes. at the end of the day it's a sticky situation and you know what else is sticky stickers and the fromish <laughs> channel the fromish channel is sponsored by riotstickers.com um we love riot stickers they are the official 
uh, sponsor of the Frumis channel. We are doing a very special deal, as you can see below the little ticker tape right here, where you can get uh, a thousand stickers for $79 at ridestickers.com backslash Frumis. That's F R U M E S S. Link is in the description along with the band camp for manimals. So if you're curious to hear what manimals sounds like, go down and check out that band camp as well. Check out the CD uh, Studies in Scarlet as you can see right here, 1982 to 2018. But also check out the link for riotstickers.com because riot stickers are the bomb. These stickers, they are uh, printed on vinyl, which makes them waterproof. Uh, they are three inches by three inches, even though these are 2.5 by three inches. The ones that you would get were three inches by three inches, and they have a UV coating to really protect from the sunshine. So these things, they're going to last a long time outside, and they're going to last even longer on the inside. Um, let's play our quick 60 second commercial break video and then we will get right back at it with Larry the Wolf. And we are back with Larry the Wolf, Manimals in the House. It's a full moon somewhere. And Larry, he is out. Blood is the harvest. Um, Larry, let me ask you. I, I want to ask you one more thing, and then we're gonna we're gonna die. I want to dive in. I want to ask you some more stuff about other music. We're gonna talk about I want to talk, I want to ask you what your feelings are about Berlin and Lou Reed. But okay. Um, I want to, and I do want to make a comment on the last topic you did before the break. But please go ahead, yeah. Jeff. No, 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 no. Finish. Hold on. Before we move on, before we move on, finish what you wanted to say about that last topic. Go ahead. I'm listening. All ears. Two go great ahead. examples of how a song would sell again. Elvis recorded "Always on My Mind." Willie Nelson's biggest hit is "Always on My Mind." And his other song was "Walking After Midnight" by the great Patsy Cline. Who that's, that's my second song. favorite of all time. I love it. And great then the song. other song "Without You" by uh, written by uh, Pete Ham from Badfinger covered by Harry Nilsson mm. in the mm. early 70s. Massive hit, 72 or 3. And then what's her name? Uh, Mariah Carey has a massive hit with it 20 years later. Good great point. Great songs repeat, just like great movies. You're right. Getting. No, no, those are two great case studies that that prove that what in that what-if scenario, it is very likely that Whitney Houston would have recorded it. You're right. Yeah. I'll right. make, and I'll make, I just mentioned something important. I, I, you know, you always hear that thing about the people that are 27, the famous rock stars that died at 27. Yeah. Okay. 27 club. Yeah. Yes. There's one that's always left out and it's a tragedy. His name is Pete Ham. He was the singer song, yes. the songwriter from Badfinger. Yep. Terrible the Ivies that turned into Badfinger. Yes. Yep. 
uh, sadly took his own life. They we had the biggest hit, massive record sales, was duped out of all his money, was so desperate, yep. filled with despair. And he, uh, you know, he he left at 27. He's often overlooked, but it's funny. Almost everybody knows too. If they watched uh, Breaking Bad, they heard yeah. Baby Blue at the end. Baby Blue, yeah, beat him. That's now, now what a lot of people don't realize, well, some people realize, but the um, so the producer of some of those uh, bad finger recordings is Mal Evans, who was breaking into producing, having come from being the Beatles personal inner circle uh, road road manager as the, you know, the bad finger was signed. One of the acts that was signed to Apple records. In fact, another one of their hits was written by Paul McCartney. I forget which one, what it's called. Uh, Come and get it. Come and get it. Right. Come and get it. And just to think that Paul McCartney, and again, I cannot talk about the Beatles with you because in the way that you are a fanatic about Elvis is that is me with the Beatles. And if I say too much about the Beatles, then I will go off on a tangent that we will never return from it. It'll be okay. like entering the phantom zone. Larry, and we'll never be able to get out. So we'll we do that another time, Jeff. Another we'll time. Yes. Another time. Larry's going to come back on the show for sure. Larry's got to come back. Um, but uh, wait, what was I just saying? Oh, Paul McCartney in the year 1969. My goodness. Not only is are they making Abbey Road, but the dude is like, hey, here's come and get it. Just here. Take it. That's going to be a hit. Uh, what is her? Mary Hopkins. Goodbye. Yeah. Here, have that song. Like, and then on top of it all, George Harrison, he's 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 writing something. Uh, basically any song that's not written by Paul McCartney, they're like, Paul, do the bass part. And Paul subversively is writing his own song underneath their songs with his bass. His never his bass never repeats. You're a bass man, Larry. The bass never repeats, Larry. Come on, the bass never <laughs> it's crazy. I, yeah, Paul McCartney's phenomenal talent. He, Paul McCartney, he, Paul McCartney. But let's digress because if I don't, I will. I, I don't. I do not want to be tempted. Um, you you mentioned the death of Gwen Stacy before, yes. and the the thing that I really loved about the last Spider Man movie, of course, Gwen Stacy's death is a big thing in comic bookdom because. It's this insane, it's the pathos that it gives to Peter Parker. The first great tragedy in Peter Parker's life is that Uncle Ben dies and Uncle Ben dies as a result of Peter's, you know, before he learns the lesson, what really means great power comes great responsibility and whatnot. Uh, the second lesson that's not as discussed as often is not a lesson per se, but the tragedy, I should say, is when the goblin throws Gwen Stacy. This is for anybody who's not familiar with it. The goblin throws Gwen Stacy off of a, a, a bridge, a tower. I don't know, Larry, you correct me, whichever, whatever it was, the bridge. bridge of some kind. And 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 Peter fires his web slinger uh, and attaches it to Gwen Stacy and makes a fatal mistake that he replays in his head for years afterwards, trying to figure out what he could have done differently because the irony is even though it's the goblin that throws Gwen Stacy off of the, the, the bridge it's Peter's webs that actually end up dealing the death blow that kills Gwen Stacy because well, why don't you take it over Larry? Why, what, what yeah. reason behind it? What happened? So it's interesting. I think Jerry Conway at the time was the writer and he, uh, and Stan was Stanley was the, the, the editor in chief I think Jerry Conway was the one that came up with the idea to, to kill off. Because I know there was a, a comic book 
monthly or whatever, about 20 years ago, I have that has who killed, how did that evolve, that story, killing her off? Mm. Because anybody grew up on comic books, you know, DC comic books, somebody died, they were, in, in page two, they were back to life on page eight. <laughs> it just didn't, there was no continuity in that. So that was the thing with Stan Lee is that they, uh, and he, and, and I will say, I love Stan Lee, met him a couple times, got a chance to see him speak and it was wonderful. Um, but he did take a disproportionate amount of the credit from. Oh yes, he did. He the, did. The Gene Collins, the Jack King Kirby's, the John just like Ramirez, with Bob Len Bob Wine, Kane and Bill Lee Finger. Kevin. Just like with Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Same story. Yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, he was he was he was the 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 uh, megaphone, and he was the, idea the, man. He was the, the idea man. Idea man. Yes. Um, but then so, the I mean, writers, the people that wrote the details, get uh, they slipped through the cracks because he came up with the big idea. Then. Yeah. Everybody else goes away side yeah. as a result, which is I mean, not fair. It's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but so then the other side of it is, well, they wouldn't be Marvel without him. And that's true. That's true. So it was all, you know, this synergistic. All relative. All relative. Um, but the the thing that I didn't see until years later is that um, it's written in there. You know, you see the little sound effect written in where it says snap. And you see the still mm. of Gwen's body hitting limp. And then it wasn't until years later that I understood that that what they were implying was her her hitting the end of the web, not hitting the ground, caused her neck to snap. So to your point, Peter ultimately struggles struggles with he saved her, but he didn't. Now the reason why I bring this up is because Spider Man No Way Home, and I know you've seen this. I'm, I'm sure you've had to have seen it. Um, did was it emotional for you or did you how did you feel when they sort of retcon because what they do in the amazing spider-man with andrew garfield they retell the story of gwen stacy they recreate this moment and it's i thought it was done you know it was done okay it was it was done it, it you know for whatever for homogenized mainstream comic book audience they you know they they did it uh, and we never got to see the end of that story. It always bothered me. And for them to not only allow Andrew Garfield to complete that piece of his arc, but in a way, they sort of did it for all of Spider-Mandom. Like, you know, whether whatever the medium. Um, how did you feel in that moment when you saw that? Did it? Were you surprised? Were you not surprised? Like, what did you think about that moment? I, I have to tell you, I... I... I, I am I'm, I don't get disappointed by them because I care deeply about the characters. By the way, I love that you use George Melier's A Trip to the Moon on your stickers and on your logo. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Love that. Love those movies. Yes. The, um, the thing about it is, is that I they have been losing me as a as a as a fan who grew up on on Spider-Man with, again, the John Romita or Ross Andrew artwork because they keep aging him in reverse. Mm. Part of the Marvel continuum was that the characters aged. I know it was slow, real time, but we saw Peter Parker go from high school You're right. to college, to That's grad true. school, to getting married. Now he's aging in reverse, and it doesn't work for me anymore. I don't want to see Spider-Boy, and that's what it's become for me. So I try to enjoy the movies to the best that I can. It bothers me because they have such great blueprints uh, to work from storyboards, right. if you will, that have been done. Literally storyboards. Yeah. F with it. Just do the damn things the way they were done that, <laughs> that kept the character alive for 60 years. So um, 
uh, to me, the best of all the Spider-Man franchise films of all of them is Spider-Man Two, with uh, the, the Sam Raimi. I think, I, yes, I and I don't love uh, what's his name, to, uh, Toby Toby Maguire. I yeah. didn't love him as Spider-Man. It wasn't my thing. I, I wanted the 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 John Romita drawn uh, Peter Parker. I didn't mm. want the Steve Ditko, and I know that's what they're going. But I but it but it worked. But uh, I can't think of the actor's name who plays Doc Ock. They get him so right. Alfred in that movie. Alfred Molina. Yes, he's spectacular. I, I love him in that movie. He might be my my favorite of any of the movies as a villain. He has it. You you, you have empathy for him. He's he's yeah. tortured. You didn't mean to be. I think that movie's great. The scene at the end when he's when Peter is uh, with Spider Man is uh, all the New Yorkers step up and say you got to go through me. You got to go through me when he's on the subway or the train. Then right. he stops. And they're saying we'll cover for you. That's such a. I mean, that's the. That's essence the heart. Of that is. It is because he's your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, and here yeah. is the neighborhood returning yeah. the favor and sticking up for him yeah. in in that kind of way in his yeah. weakest moment. Right. And they capture an essence of the Mary Jane Peter relationship. So after that, I got to tell you, I enjoy the movies, but right, you're a little turned off. You're turned off. I, I don't want to. You know, there's there's a reason why DC had. Superman, Superboy, Crypto to Superdog, <laughs> Supergirl. I mean, I don't want to see teenage, you know, I understand it's like Lois and Clark and these other things, but I, I would like to see Spider-Man. Spider-Man. With adult problems. Although I got to tell you, I agree with Ramey says that Andrew Garfield was a great Peter Parker. He's my favorite of the three of them. The, the the middle one, the guy from the Amazing Spider-Man movies, he the, the guy who's in the Gwen Stacy movie, he's the he, he's my favorite that they've done live action with. I think he works really, really well for yes. that age of Peter Parker. For sure. that age. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I By the way, you, you do you you saw the things if you look at the actual stickers, it's different from what's on there. I put my face in the moon for <laughs> I took I took my face and I I I you know it's public domain. I was like, all right, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna stick my face in there. I might as well. That's cool. That'll, that'll be my crimson ghost. Is is the uh, is the 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 moon with the? Uh, it's one of my favorite images, man. I just love it. I, I think it's really really spectacular. Cool. Um, so let me ask you this. Let's talk a little bit about manimals, uh, and particularly um, the sort of like. Not genre. I don't want to put like genre, use genre words with you to describe your music, but like it is interesting that like you're kind of doing it's like it, it's more metal based, but it's got a punk rock energy to it. It does not, it's like it would be wrong to call it metal and it would be wrong to call it punk rock. What do you, how do you describe your music or what's the best way? that you sort of feel about that it's 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 uh monster metal horrorcore mm -hmm. beast metal whatever you want to call it uh i don't all i set out to do jeff was to write good songs and to have something to say now i'll tell you i i hear some music and i think i try too hard you know i got I got an undergraduate degree in english i i like words i i think mm -hmm. they should be meaningful uh, I despise lyrics that suck. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have to be magnificent, but I, I don't. I also don't want to listen to uh, Harry Carp. What was it? Uh, what's that guy? I can't think. 
I, you know, I don't want to listen to the the record of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Doesn't have to be. You know, I forget that guy uh, that guy's name who wrote that. But it, they don't have to write a dissertation. But I'd like this, the lyrics to be me meaningful and to hear a hook. So the bands sure. that meant something to me when I was a kid were the ones I heard. Like I said, Poor Vern the Raiders. And I, when I was a, a kid, I remember hearing, you know, Mott the Hoople, uh, Slade. You know, th th those all had melody to them. And, um, and, I, and I try to play things. How I play them is I play them aggressively. But I write them just for the, for the song, for the, for the melody and for the hook and for the lyrics. So... Um, with that, I think one of the things I'm probably that was intentional was when I first saw the Sex Pistols because I thought at that age, I was at that age where I mean, music, you know, I I, I did stuff like uh, the stuff that was out in the mid to late '70s didn't speak to me. It just didn't didn't work for me, and um, that was the popular stuff. But I heard uh, "God Save the Queen," and that was a game changer for me. And then there was a band called Stars who had a song called Cherry Baby. Uh, they were also managed by O'Coin, who was uh, like the kid. Cherry Baby, like, Cherry. Yep. No, 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 no. Uh, she's just a fallen angel, boys in action. It's S-T-A-R-Z. If you remember the actor. Right, I'll, I'm, hold on, I'll, I'll go. I'm, hold on, I'm putting that on my Spotify real quick. So I could, yeah. or, or my, uh, so they did a song called X-Ray Specs on their second or third record. And you okay. can hear... The guy's name was Michael Lee Smith, who was the lead singer. His brother was a guy by the name of Rex Smith, who used to be a movie star and a, a TV star in the late 70s. Um, and then the guitar player uh, had been in the band Looking Glass, who did Brandy, You're a Fine Girl, whatever, was the, a movie for, or thing. For them. They were a very, very good hard rock band of the late 70s. And they do a song called X-Ray Specs that you can hear him channeling uh, Steve Jones on guitar and here and channeling Johnny Rotten on the vocal, but then they blend it with hard rock and the chorus. It's a great song, and that and I heard I thought they're blending these two things together. Then I saw the Plasmatics in '81, and I saw oh, them. I, had, I saw <laughs> them in Detroit with John Bouvoir on, on bass, who was a spectacular bass player, and I think they only did one tour together with him, and. Mm. Uh, he it was Stu Deutsch on drums, Richie Stotts, West Beach, John Bouvoir on bass, and you know Wendy Williams. And they they came out, they blew up the car on stage. It is I never saw so many police officers, law enforcement at a concert in my life. They were they it was that you know wild at that time. But the difference was they were punk rock, but they were they could play. Their rhythm section was killer. Mm. I was I loved the energy of punk rock and go to hardcore shows, but I got tired of seeing guys that couldn't play for shit. I mean, at some point, you have to have an amount of pride and say, well, I, I, I'm going to do this thing. Am I just here to do fun and games, or am I going to try to be somewhat good at what I'm doing? Um, as a filmmaker, you can go out and shoot film, but at some point, you want to start to have create your, your language of film and absolutely make it meaningful. Okay, so what I saw was at that time, I saw all the guys I knew that were playing like metal bands. Their thing was to, I'm not knocking people, let's be realistic, so the guys in the hardcore bands had all this energy. And I loved the DIY, the do-it-yourself. I loved it. They weren't waiting for anybody. They do their own records, do their own seven-inch, uh, you know, little singles. They do their own flyers. You know, you, you, you play in a, in a whatever, abandoned building, whatever it was. You did your own stuff. You weren't waiting for anybody else to help you with it. The metal guys and the rock guys were all trying to be like, well, I'm going to record a demo and I'm going to right. get 
play. They're, and no, you're not, because most of you suck and you can't play for. <laughs> you know. <laughs> this is why I love sports. I, I you know, most of what I, I've gotten to do a lot of nice things in my life. Yeah. And the things I did, you know, music's just a very small thing out of many things I do. The reason why I love athletics and sports is because it's a pure meritocracy. You find out real quick who's good and who isn't. Okay. Wait, you said what? You, wait, art, hold on. That word good. you said meritocracy. Yes, sir. That's interesting. I've never, I've never, never heard it put that way. I like that. All right, sorry. Continue. I'm listening. Well, Go ahead. I'm on a roll. So yeah. here it is. So, I mean, if you have, for instance, you have track and field or swimming as well. It's in track and field. Whoever ran the fastest, jumped the highest, threw the farthest. Right. Parents and everybody else can shut their mouths. None of it matters. My kid didn't do this. My kid should be starting all that stuff. My kid's the best. No, it's not. Your kid just got his ass whooped. Her ass. Well, that's how it works. It's a meritocracy. You earn your spot. And there's no question about it. With music or the arts, because it's art, it's however we perceive it. Now, you have all these. It's kids. subjective. It's subjective. It's totally subjective. And so you've got all these kids that they're told they, 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 they drew a little bit. They like, everybody had a kid that liked to draw in school. I liked to draw in school as a kid and say, oh, you're really good. You're really good. And then you go to a bigger school, and they, there's a lot of other kids who get told, you're really good. At some point, you're not all really good. Some are good and some aren't. And they have to look in the mirror and say, do I have what it takes? I tell people it's funny because I did a radio show with my friend Bill Peters a few weeks ago. And we were talking about this, and he asked me about, you know, uh, you know would it have been nice to have played more shows and all this other stuff? I said, sure it would have. But I got to a level of... I like to say we're such a cult band, such an underground band. We're almost subterranean. Um, but you know, what's funny is that must've been what my level of talent and ability was. I wanted to mm. give my life to it. So because I had other things to do. I had other stuff out there. It, this was not because I didn't want to be like, I know some of these guys that their whole pursuit of life has been playing in a band. And they were never realistic, and they didn't put the time into their families. They didn't put time into their education. They didn't put time into their work or their careers. They didn't put time into their own development in other areas. God bless them. If that's what they want to do, right. great. Great. But just don't be bitter with the world because it doesn't work out for most. It takes a supreme amount of, ta of it takes talent. Yeah. It takes talent. It takes timing. It takes mm -hmm. luck. It probably takes a little bit of divine intervention. You know, it, yes. it, all kinds of things have to align. And if someone is willing, that's why I love the fact that the Misfits, I saw that they just uh, announced uh, the devil man, Maurice, posted up, who's a great guy. He just posted up something about they have their three big shows that they just announced. That's I, I, I'm so happy for them. Proud. I see they had the talent. They had something unique. They had the songs. Mostly they have Glenn's vocal and songwriter, but they have the complete package to go out there. And that is such a cool thing. That's when you know it's right. When the talent does rise and, and gets recognized and plays an appropriate sized audience for what they've done. That's terrific. But a band I mentioned earlier, Stars, Artful Dodger, Mata Hoople should be, should be, they should have been gigantic. I mean, they're great bands with a lot of talent, but the time if Susie Quattro had come out in 1982 instead of 72, nobody would know who the hell Joan Jett was. 
She was just mm. Susie Quattro 2.0 10 years later when MTV hit. It's timing. I got to tell you, well, first of all, Tanner in the audience. Hi, Tanner. Tanner says, and I, I actually, I totally agree. I totally agree here. Larry spitting the most honest take on being a musician I've ever heard. It's not just, I don't think it's just that. I think it's, uh, I really think it's any sort of art form. And, you know, I can say this, like, sometimes you give it your all and you push and you push and you push and you hit a wall and you, you basically come to this. It's kind of like a crossroads, I think. And the crossroads is this, which where you really sort of like you, 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 you go two different directions. You either recognize exactly who and what you are and you accept it. And yes. you, you still, you can ask yourself this question. Do I like doing this? And do I care what the outcome is when doing it? And if the answer is yes, I like doing this and I don't care what the outcome is, then if you hit a brick wall, you simply can keep going. You just can't move in the direction that you want anymore. You just, you, you turn right or you turn left and you go that way and you find another way to do the thing that you love doing and not caring about what the outcome is. And then you have the other people or you have another type of person who gets to that same brick wall and they just stop and they can't move from their spot and they yes. stand there scratching their head and they go, they go, what the heck am I doing? I mean, what the heck is going on? The world is not fair. Nothing is working. And, you know, that's the reality. And I'll tell you something. I'll tell you this. I'll, I, I will even, I will personalize this. I will internalize this a bit. My plan was to make, I wanted a body of films. I wanted, I made my first feature in 2014 and I had plans, man. I wanted to have, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten films. Let me tell you something. As you are aware, it is not easy to make a feature length film. It is not Very easy difficult. to make a feature length film on a micro budget. Even it's even more difficult. If you want, you know, what's funny the it's you can, it, anybody can make a film once anyone can make an album once it's look at the guys that do it twice. Cause when you get to that point, when you get to the end and you go, holy shit, that was a lot of fucking work. And then there's a lot of people, they make one and they're done. And they're like, that was good. I, 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 I don't think I can do that again. And it's only the people that like, literally like they put the backpack back and I go, oh, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. And they go again. And if you could break through that second time, that third time, that fourth time, you know, yes. again, obviously like resources and money aside, because if you have money, it's a lot easier to do these things. But my, the point being is that like, you you come it's like when you hit that brick wall where you can't push any further for whatever reason whether it's talent whether it's resources whether it's life circumstances you know you have a family i had i ended you know right after i made that movie i ended up having a son and then you know things things change <laughs> things lots of things change and suddenly your priorities change and you know you have to start making choices and hopefully the right ones. And because mature, strong men always put their families first. 
Yes. I, yeah, or um, else you yes, end up with that's right. You end up there's an awful lot of Peter Pan. <laughs> there's a lot of Peter Pan syndrome going on in this world. Yes, but here's the thing. So here's the thing with that though. Like going back to that first category of person who hits the brick wall and goes, fuck, like I am exhausted. This is not going how I needed it to go or how I wanted it to go. Uh, I'm gonna stop for a minute or I'm gonna take a rest. And then when I when I, when I've had a rest, I'm going to stand back up and I can't go this way anymore. Cause there's a wall. I'm going to look over here. I'm going to see what it is. is, is going this way. The same as going straight this way where there's a brick wall. No, it's different, but it's still aligned with the goal or with the feeling with the mentality. And here's the mentality that I'm referring to. I think of it as like a fiery passion to do what you want to do. As yes. long as you don't let that fire die inside of you, even if you're not doing what you intended to do a decade prior, as long as that fire is still burning inside of you, yes. then you have not given up and you have not, nothing has stopped. You're just, and that's me. I'm talking about me personally. That's yes. been my personal experience. And it's like, I'll tell you something. If you told me three years ago that I would be literally almost every night talking on the internet, I would have been like, that's no, that's not what I do. I'm, I want to be a filmmaker. I'm a filmmaker. I make movies. I don't do this, but I was like, I like doing this. I like who I am when I'm doing this, I'm going to keep going in this direction. And I just, and finding um, satisfaction and, uh, fulfillment in in areas that I never would have intended if I just had that tunnel vision of going through that that where I thought I was going through, but only hitting a brick wall. And yeah, yes. I don't know. Well, it's because you have it's it's another creative outlet, right? As you pursue yes. one goal, yes. your goals can change. It doesn't have to remain the same consistently. But I think what you talk about being is almost having being compelled. You're compelled to do it. It bothers you if you don't do it, or you have a, you become an obsession with it. It has to be done. You have the creative outlet that has to be satisfied somewhere. Yes, absolutely, ab, mm, absolutely. And as you said, what it from what you've spoken of and the way you've spoken of, and I'll tell you something. I'm really not trying to blow smoke up your ass. What I see when you said the way that what you said when you were breaking that all down, that's that's a form of humility because you want to know what it is. You recognize who and what you are and you diversify yourself. Yes. You diversify yes. yourself and you find fulfillment in many different areas instead of just this one little tiny little bullseye that you establish that everybody establishes for themselves at some point in their life. Yes. And you know, you fall, you will fall flat in your face. You will hit that brick wall and break your nose. If you don't stop and look at it and go, whoa, and take an assessment. And you can do, we can use all kinds of metaphors or similes. Right. It's like tacking the sail. You tack the yeah. sail to catch the wind the right way. You adjust. You adjust to life because life adjust. is static. You adjust and you, you adapt. Yeah, dude. Uh, yeah, but I, I love what there's a cool conversation, Jeff. This yes. Is, it's cool. I, I agree. I, I agree. knew we weren't going to just talk about just music stuff because there's oh, so I, much yeah. out there. There it's is. There is. In all different ways, and it's cool. There is. And and that brings me actually, I, I actually, I, you mentioned that you liked what I was saying about Lou Reed's Berlin. Are you, you, you're a Lou Reed fan. What, uh, do, you, you're, you're a fan of Berlin as well. 
Yeah. Yes. And I will tell you, you, you prompted me to revisit it. I got to show oh, really? you when I, go to, when I go to the gym, one of my favorite shirts, ah, transformer, Ludwig transformer. Hell yeah. Of course. You know, I also wear this once in a while. That's authentic. That's a uh, big George Foreman from, uh, I saw he and Evander Holyfield, 1991 battle of the ages. That's an old shirt. Of course. That's cool. On the best days. I'm that guy that never wears a Manimal shirt. And by the way, the name Manimals is a terrible name. It's a terrible do you name. Know, do you know that there's a, when I tried searching Manimals, there's another band called Manimals. Yeah, they could have had it. I, what nah, the hell? It, was, it was a bad name. It was a bad name. Well, the, but the logo. So I'll tell you what your name is, actually. You, you're, it's not a bad name, Larry. It's a name that is accentuated by the visual logo because the logo is cool as hell. The, like the font. And what the problem is when you look at Manimals in like a plain Times New Roman font, it doesn't have the same bite as you go, whoa, look at this pink. Look at this fuchsia here. This is crazy. What is this band? I got to check this out. But when you just see Manimals, you're like, wait, is that like a yogurt or something? Like it doesn't, yeah, yeah. it doesn't have the same, it doesn't have, so it's not a bad it's name. It's just a problem. name. No, but it has, it's a name that is predicated on its cool ass logo to help accentuate what makes it great. And I well, think I'm, that is what you really, what the, what the real situation is. That's very kind of you, Jeff. And I appreciate it. And the, the, the logo I hand drew many years ago, cause I didn't want to borrow somebody else's font. I wanted something to be my <laughs> own. Um, that name came out because it was, I was highly influenced. I'll back up. So I said earlier, I'd like to dabble with art and stuff. So I tried taking a shot at the early eighties, um, that was when comic stop comic shops started opening and you had direct comics, no longer just newsstand. Mm-hmm. All these little independent uh, comics uh, labels. Caliber. Caliber. Yeah, Caliber was one of them. Uh, E-Comic. Uh, what was that one? Uh, Eclipse. Um, there was another one that the Rocketeer came out on and Jack Kirby. And Eclipse. I love, comics. love, love, love the Rocketeer. Oh, yeah. They, uh, yes. <laughs> um. Dave Stevens, God bless him, what a terrific artist. Um, so I, what I did was I loved the movie Island of Dr. Moreau, which was the or Island of Lost right. Souls, which was the adaptation of Island of Dr. Moreau. 1932. Yep. So I came up with this thing and I drew, I was trying, I pitched a comic, a uh, set of comic pages I had drawn about a character and it was Manimal. So it was a comic oh. book character. And I and inside the booklet, uh, my friend Argyle Goolsby of Blitzkid, super talented guy, he did all the layout for me. Uh, wonderful guy. And then my friend Sean Vanek, who plays on this and who also is in the band Midnight and has his own band Vanek, he did all the remastering. So those two guys I had to say thank you to because they helped me get that across the finish line. But he included in it, there's some pages in it that show my, my drawings uh, you know, whatever that pay, whatever that is, eight by twelve paper, those blue point paper, yeah, that I had drawn for the character. But then I thought, well, wait a minute. I went to a couple of hardcore shows. I thought I, I, I could do a band. And what if I made it? What if I looked that way? What if there were three of us that looked that way? So that's where it came from. It was an idea for a comic book that I pitched to a company called First Comics in Chicago. A guy by the name of Joe State, and he said, "Ah, your your anatomy is pretty good. You got to work on your backgrounds. Come back." Yeah, those are, I drew those when I was 20, 20, 20, 21 years old. 
And um, those were a couple of panels that I had pitched. And I thought, well, they're not interested. I'm not. And, and that was when I talked about meritocracy and talent. I knew I wasn't good enough. I was okay, but I didn't have special talent. And I didn't have the drive to work at it at that. To, to I wasn't compelled, consumed with the idea of, of being a, a comic book artist. So I just pitched it. I did a little bit. And I thought, I can do something else I'd rather do with it. I'd rather perform. Mm. So that's where that came from. And I, I would change the name. I would like to amend, uh, to touch really quick back on our previous tangent. I would like to amend one thing that was not mentioned. I think it's egregious not to mention it. This idea of what you just said, like the, the hard work aspect that goes in as well, because it is, yes, talent is important. Yes, good songs, you know, good script ideas, whatever the case is important, but like hard work, showing up, treating it like a job is so much of, of whether it's successful or not. We're not talking about whether it's successful. We're just talking about bringing it to life is such a, such an integral part of bringing it to life. You have to be able to put in the incredibly hard work, even when you yes. lose sight. And the, the thing is, and I think this is what, I think maybe this is like the secret and it's not a secret that anybody knows as it's happening. It's only a secret that maybe you figure out when you're, you've got some years behind you and you know, you're like, you know, you, you can see the bigger picture of it all. And it's this idea that it's all about, it's all about the, the, the end result has to be about, bringing the work to life, the fruition, bringing it to finding satisfaction in willing something into existence. Because yes. that's literally what you're doing. You're taking something that's in your head, whether it's an art, a painting, a book, a comic book, music or whatever. And you are working so hard to bringing it into existence. And if you can stay within that cosm, then you will be very happy and successful no matter what the outcome is. Yes. 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 If you maximize your talent to the, to the absolute best of your abilities, that's success. You I, measure success yeah. from your starting point to where you get to. And some people start, there's every, every wrestling room in the country, every junior high, high school right. wrestling program, you'll see kids walking around with a shirt that says, Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Wait, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, say that again? Wait, one more time? You've heard that one before, haven't you? No, I've never heard okay. that before. Say it again. Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. At 100%. And that is the truth because there's a lot of lazy, talented people out there. My <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. Grappling and, and uh, wrestling or real wrestling. I love pro wrestling, but real wrestling submission yeah. grappling all found me late in life and i had a son who wrestled in college so you know it'll spend a lot of times in the mat in the room and at meets and you'd see guys walking or kids walking around every every school would have that on the shirt very popular saying in the wrestling wow just like a very popular uh saying in the track circuit i've got a daughter down at marshall university uh, i was a javelin thrower down there she uh very famous uh, statement by the great prefontaine Steve Prefontaine, who said to, to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. To Everybody's gift is different. Yeah. 
to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. It's the gift of whatever you happen to be, whatever your talent, whatever your unique abilities are. If you don't do the best with it, well, that's yeah. a sad I, Waste of talent, just like the movie of Bronx Tale, where he tells the kids, see, the saddest thing in life, see, is wasted talent. That is, wow, we went deep on this one, kids, folks. We went deep on this one. Let me ask you this. Um, to switch gears on you again, tell me again, because I'm just a ginormous uh, fan of the Misfits. And... Um, when did you okay? So when did you first become aware of the Misfits? And like you ended up playing, you did some, you did a show with the uh, the Misfits, and you also did a show with Sam Hain. Tell me a little bit about that. What any any sort of I don't know if if you have oh, anything sure. to say about that. Yeah. yeah, the first I heard them. Uh, I, I think the uh, the Iron Maiden Number of the Beast album came out at the same time that Walk Among Us came out. I was in, I was in I was in college, and. Uh, should have gone to the service. I would have been a better fit for the service than college at that time. But that's another story. Um, and uh, my friend John Stainbrook, who was my first, uh, my pal in school and uh, first drummer, he um, he said, you got to hear this band. He says, you'll like this stuff. And I heard and I said, and I, you know, I didn't like a lot of the other hardcore stuff. It all sounded very much the same. I liked the attitude. I liked the energy. But I didn't, the music didn't really connect with me. Um, but I liked the aggressiveness. I liked the going to live shows, but I, I wasn't really crazy about most of the recorded records. And I heard Walk Among Us. I said, wait a second. This guy's got a great voice. There's hooks here. There's backups. This is different. And um, then John said, hey, they're coming. I'm, I'm gonna, they're going to be playing in Detroit. So we went up to see them in Detroit. And uh, on, a, on, a, uh, on a Friday... It was the Henry Ford Museum. It was the same day they did the Why Be Something You're Not videotaping. We weren't, I didn't get up there early enough in the day. I think John did. I didn't get up there. We went at night, met Jerry. We talked, said, hey, we're going to see him play Sunday. They were squeezing in this Toledo, Ohio show on a Sunday. They were going out to Chicago for Saturday, coming back to play in Toledo on Sunday. So I, I know that there was, uh, John and I, so that weekend, we went to, up to uh, Dearborn to see uh, the Misfits with the big boys, I think we're playing with them. Then the next night, it was the uh, Kiss Creatures of the Night tour hitting Toledo, which nobody went to that tour. It was the Vinnie, people didn't quite know that it, if Ace Freely was going to be there or this other guy, sure enough, it was this Vinnie Vincent guy. It was very strange, um, but it was different. And John and I went to that. And I, I want to say, I think I remember Doyle might have said something to the effect of, I wish I could have gone with you guys the night before to see Kiss. I, I seem to remember that when I saw them Sunday night. Then they came back on their way from Chicago back, and we played a show in Toledo. It was uh, us, the Necros, and uh, the Misfits. And, you know, that, we were in our infancy. I'm just trying to get an idea going on. In fact, there's pictures from that show where we had – it was my buddy John. It was his It was his club, Club Stain. It was, it was an old uh, – I don't know if it was a, front, a carpet store or something in downtown Toledo. We put up a, a makeshift stage, and he had bands come through. So there was a drop ceiling with the metal, you know, uh, framework up there. We'd taken the panels out right above the stage because it was a little too low for me. And I, I remember two songs in, I, I had a Kramer eight-string bass that had a metal, you know, had a because I was a big Tom Peterson, Cheap Trick fan, but I couldn't afford one of those Hamer basses. So I found this Kramer thing that wouldn't stay in tune, and it, it, had, it was totally neck-heavy. So it would, go, it would go like that if I didn't hold on the neck, but it had a big, heavy aluminum neck. So I swung it up first or second song in it. It bangs into the metal 
stuff about it goes completely, utterly out of tune. But uh, so it was a disaster. But we had all kinds of energy. We played our four or five original songs. Uh, we played Strutter at the end or Come On and Love Me. The kids went crazy. We blew up a few bombs that were way too powerful. And I remember seeing uh, uh, all uh, Robo. Robo had a big smile. He loved it. He loved it. You know, and and everybody was very cool. They, you know, guys watched from the side. I remember they talked about uh, they were going to play a show this to Maximum Rock and Roll. They said, we're playing with this band in Ohio. They blow stuff up and play a Kiss cover. But we were in an infancy. We really were. The outfits were terrible. You know, we had attitude. And I knew what I wanted to do, but we weren't there. It was our second or third show. On the other hand, the Misfits come out, and they were a polished machine. They were great. They were terrific. Now it was it was uh, everything was played 100 miles an hour, but it was it was it was spectacular. I mean, it was all it was over the top energy. They were great. I always when I listened to bootleg recordings, I was not alive to hear these things. Um, but when I listen to those bootlegs, I I always think to myself that that it almost sounds like uh, it's like a runaway train that is barely like making contact with the tracks, like like this <laughs> like this. Uh, like it's chaos, but it stays on the rail somehow to get to the end of the song. But like yeah. in the in the in the in the thrall, it's uh, yeah. chaos. That's what I hear when I listen to those recordings. Uh, oh, they're cool. In fact, somewhere buried in my archive, somewhere I have a cassette of this show, and uh, it, it's somewhere around. And it's funny because uh, who uh, John Brandon came down because Detroit Toledo was really more like a, a suburb of Detroit. And um, so a lot of the Detroit people came down and John Brandon from Negative Approach got up and did a song with them. Uh, I remember that. And I think he, I think I forget what song they did, but they did a song together. Can't tell no one. Yep. That's it. They did that. Wow. Did that. Yeah, it was cool. It was, a, they were, it was a cool show. They were, you know, there were kids there, Jeff, at the time who were into more the uh, what would you call it? Um, like the. Uh, East Coast, West Coast, whatever it was, Washington, D.C. type of punk. And they didn't get, there was some that would say like, oh, they're the Kiss Fits. Or they, they didn't like the image and they didn't like the logos and stuff. I said, you guys are out of your mind. That's cool. It's cool. They're packaging this branding. That's that's what's going to be, that's memorable. People are going to get this. Um, and, you know, I think I was right. Well, let me ask later, you. Most of those other bands nobody cares about. Let me interject here, even like at that, I'm I'm asking you this question, like in the sense of like, uh, if you, like, don't like, I, I, you know, it's hard. It's hard to talk about these things when they happened decades and decades and decades ago. But like, can you remember or can you remember how you might have remembered like your reaction to the Crimson Ghost around that time and maybe even after a little bit after they broke up? And like what kind of, um, you know, how it kind of played into all that stuff that you were just talking about. The, the logo, the crimson the image and all that. Oh, well, because I had been, a, again, like a lot of kids, a monster kid of the 60s and 70s. I had the, the famous monsters. I knew of the Republic serial and that image. And I knew the logo was taken from Famous Monsters magazine. I mean, I knew that instantly. Now, 90% of the other kids who were going to the shows didn't know that. But anybody who had been a monster fan or grew up at that time knew it. Um and and it was it was interesting because if you went an hour away to like Cleveland, there, there was a class, there was no hardcore scene whatsoever at that time. So it, it was you know how at different periods you had like a regional band. Like I know uh, there was a band, the Romantics, that were gigantic in Detroit at one time. 
there was another band in Cleveland or like Artful Dodger, I think was very, they were from Washington, D.C. They were very big in Cleveland because Cleveland adopted them. There were bands in the hardcore, the hardcore cities that, that could, could pull shows. Cleveland wasn't one of them. I don't know if Columbus was. So you could be like an hour away from a city where they draw a lot of people to a hardcore show. An hour away, they don't even know what the hell those songs are. Hmm. So what I do remember was an awful lot of people. You know, we got comparisons from a lot of times because of my hair on the, on the one thing. The unfortunate thing was my hair was really, what I saw was I saw uh, Brian Gregory from the Cramps, from the Cramps' greatest hits, where he's got the thing over one eye, and he came to one of our early shows. And, and someone said, oh, I saw this creepy guy walk by me. And he was, you know, he's a smallish guy, but he had a very, uh, you know, he had a very, uh, uh, you know, rough looking face and he had white and he had the big swoop and he had white, whited out uh, irises or contacts. I'd never see that on somebody before. And he walked by me and he was startling. I looked at him. Look at me. So what's up, cat? <laughs> and he just kept walking along. I knew he came, somebody came over and said, that was Brian Gregory. He came to check you guys out. I thought you were a killer. So my hair was that swoop thing. But of course, like five years later, I was like, oh, it's that thing. I remember in the early 80s, everybody was getting accused with that stuff of being flock of seagulls. Right. That's what I was going to say, you flock know? of seagulls. Yeah, you know, that's people did funny things with their hair at the time. I don't know. So listen, but, uh, so if they have the devil lock, does that mean that the flock of seagulls haircut is actually the, an angel lock because it's uh, blonde and, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Angel. I, <laughs> I think I think actually I think it was maybe a uh, Squiggy or Lenny or who's the who's the the smaller the, the yeah, dark Squiggy, guy Squiggy right I think, I think Squiggy had the first one if I remember there's an episode where he's or or, or Bowser from Shanana maybe I don't know I got to tell you man I you know I never you know Shanana's never been on my radar and then one day I I know that Shanana like if you grew up in the seventies. Like that was a household institution. I mean, it was a variety show on, in, yeah. uh, you know, on on net uh, national television, which at the time was I mean like, you know, in, ingrained in pop culture. But like, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I think Shauna Nod has not, with generations that have come since, like people, like you got to do a little sort of. It, it takes a little bit of mental power to kind of know, really know who Shanana is. It's a sure. name that's always been in my periphery, but I never really like thought anything about. That. I was like, oh yeah, those the, didn't they do some songs on Greece? You know that yeah. sort of thing. And I'll tell you, there's a, a what's the German program that uh, New York Dolls and Ramones were all on? It was Mickeladen, Mickeladen, uh, or something like that. Yes, they uh, did. Music Laden, music, music Laden. Thank you, thank you. I was butchering it. Uh, and they do, man. They had Shanana on doing. I wonder why. And I got to tell you, that <laughs> that slapped, man. I was like, I was like, this is the coolest shit I've ever seen. It was awesome, dude. They they were performing. I was like, oh my god, Bowser and friggin' uh, what's his name, Danny. Um, I forget the other guy's name. Like yeah, a the main guy, the main guy, whatever yeah. the main guy's name is. They are phenomenal. And the, you have the, 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 the Husky guy that plays the sax and they're all, they're yep. doing this. They're doing this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's funny. It just occurred Love to me, it. Jeff, my buddy, Tim Orlock, he, he works with a band, uh, Steel Panther. Yeah. I've heard of Steel Panther. Okay. Sure. So you see them now, they look like an authentic, like a time capsule of hair metal from 1986 or 88, five right. or whatever. Right. 
Shanana was that time capsule, I guess, at that time that people, sure. you know, where there's American graffiti, happy days, all those right. things that people had. Just like uh, 20 years ago was the, the that's uh, the uh, Wonder Years. Kids right. who grew up in the 70s, 20 years later, you want to see first you nostalgia. Rock. It's the first yep. nostalgia wave yep. for the 50s because yep. rock and roll doesn't exist before the 50s, right? And the, the 60s are a separation and as well as an evolution of that 50s rock and roll that grows like an unwieldy amount of bamboo. Like it just gets out of control and indulgent and whatnot. And then two things happen in the seventies or two things, you know, and obviously it's easy to like think about these things when you sort of look back on history, two things happen in the seventies. One, you have the first wave of nostalgia and two, you have the sort of uh, return, the revival, the first revival, which is kind of like underground punk rock, like that yeah. this idea of like, we're going to return to the original form of rock and roll. Because at the end of the day, when you look at what punk rock was in the seventies, what is it? What is it? But fifties, just, you know, fifties rock and roll turbo charge. Very much so. Yes. You know? Um, and, and the other, the, the other wrinkle in that is I'm watching the Shauna Na video and suddenly it hits me like a sack of bricks. I was talking about like favorite movies of all time. One of them for me, which borrows heavily from the second Phantom of the Opera, the one that's color, um, because the original Phantom of the Opera has a completely oh, different plot. The uh, universal Phantom of the Opera, not the silent one um, with Claude Rains, right? Uh, yes. Yes, Claude Rains, where he he steals the music. That's not in the original uh, Phantom of the Opera. Um, was the basis for one of my all time favorite films, Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, which oh. borrows from a lot of stuff. I have a po there's a poster of it right over there, and um, the band at the beginning in the movie is called the Juicy Fruits, and it never hit me because I did not really connect with Sha Na Na. I was like, oh. Shannon, uh, the juice, the juicy fruits are Shannon. Uh, duh, is that Paul <laughs> Williams? Is that Paul Williams? Yes. Okay, yes. I know that. Yes, Paul Williams was on TV when I was a kid. He was on TV nonstop. Right. Rainbow wrote, Connection, yeah. um, Battle of the Planet of the Apes. He wrote the song, uh, old fashioned love song for Three Dog Night. So he was always mm -hmm. going on and a great songwriter. Yeah, I remember that movie. Phenomenal, so. and he also did the voice. Of the penguin in Batman the Animated Series. I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh he was actually, you know, we had I live over by Sleepy Hollow, like the the real Sleepy Hollow, and uh in Westchester, and we had that there was a Sleepy Hollow International Film Festival. They had Paul Williams was there in person with oh, Phantom cool. of the Paradise, and I got to see him on the stage. And I'll tell you, man, that I mean that dude's a freaking light. I mean, that guy is like Holy crap. Like when you think about like, and again, that talk about a guy who was like, like the hottest shit in the seventies, like that yeah. dude was the dude in the seventies. So, and, and I mean, he, he, he's a peculiar guy to be a, to be the guy, but he was, right. Right. he was a star. He was a legitimate right. star. He had something. Right. Um, yeah, that's it. That's the thing about being compelled. It, it, when we, I watched something the other night, Jeff, uh, and again, it was based on your quick thing about uh, Berlin. Yeah. And what I was, and I wanted to mention this to you because it, it yeah. is very interesting is that, and it's talking about somebody who's, whose talent always shows through and that's Bob Ezrin. Um, uh, right. Producer, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Because a lot of what makes that record, I, I, you were talking about when you hear the kids voices and the, how, 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 you know, that's a hard, I will tell you, 
I listened to that album late at night with Caroline Says Too. Oh. Sad, sad song at the end and all that stuff. All that arrangement, that's Bob Ezrin. The children's voices, that's his touch. That's him. And let me let me paint the picture for you. Go back to Alice Cooper. That's Bob Ezrin. Dwell, a ballad of Dwight Fry. Mommy, when is daddy coming home? Then when he goes into... Oh, uh, shit. Then when you go to when Alice goes solo, okay, and he has the, yeah. Welcome to the Nightmare Tour, Department of Youth with the kids singing in the background. We're the Department of Youth. Uh, we got the power. Then... In between, he produces Berlin for Lou Reed, brings children and all the orchestration. Then he goes over and does Kiss oh Destroyer. God. What does he do? On Great Expectations, you have the kids' choir, and on God of Thunder, you hear the kids screaming in the background. He does it over and over again. And he, he produces The Wall. I don't like Pink Floyd, but he does The Wall with right. The all another Yeah, the that kids is, singing. That is Bob Ezrin over and over and over again. That's his touches. And in fact, his gimmick, his gimmick is kids. Yeah, well, that's, one of, <laughs> that's one of his motifs he likes to go back to. So what do I do? On two songs, what do I do? I pay homage to something. I have the symbol and I have Dead Man's Eyes. My oldest daughter at the time was about eight, nine years old. I have her doing a speaking part in that. That's the Bob Ezrin influence. I have another wow. section of song that's a direct, I will tell you, there's a song on there that has a reference to Neil Diamond, of all people on it. But we'll, we could talk about that because I, Neil Diamond's cool too. Hot August Night, the first Neil Diamond's live album is spectacular. I'll tell you, you know, I, I feel like you'd be you'd be into this. At least you would appreciate this. I am also, I love, 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 love. I know this is at the time, this was like the mainstream. So I guess maybe, you know, for any punk rocker would kind of roll their eyes at it, but like now, or at least whatever, it doesn't matter. What am I talking about? Uh, fucking motherfucking. Uh, Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell oh, yeah. is like one of my favorite albums, man. And I got to tell you, I know that that was like what was the mainstream thing in 77, 78, but there is nothing mainstream about how punk rock Bad Out of the Hell is when you think about the fact that those dudes were just going from record label to record label, just being like, you know, and every record was like, we're not going to record 20 minute like Wagner, Wagnerian, Wagner-esque. Yeah. Wagner-esque thank Wagner-esque. you. Ra- Wagner-esque, like, you know, uh, whatever you want to call it, rock operas about like uh, Peter Pan and Neverland and whatnot. And then finding the dude who produced the New York Dolls to be like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll I'll do that. I'll I'll uh I'll record that in my studio. And then they're like, we need a we need a, a motorcycle. And he's like, I'm like, I don't have a motorcycle. What do you want? You know, for the for the revving the car. He goes, hang on, hang on a minute. He jacks into the the board. He does DIs right into the board. Flips a couple of switches. And then that 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 motorcycle you hear on Bat Out of Hell is not a motorcycle. That's the guitar. That's a guitar, man. Interesting. Legendary. I- Legendary. See- I'm based in the Cleveland area, and that that record and that artist is a big deal because I was on Cleveland International Records. The fellow, mm-hmm. I forget his name, who took a chance on that, and he went all in on that. The A&R guy went all in on that record. And, and uh, Steinman, right? Jim Steinman. Yeah, Jim and, Steinman, man. Yeah. Uh, he had a vision, for, and he had a guy to, the right guy to sing it, the guy from Rocky Horror, right? Yep. Who was also yep. kind of a, a, a doo-wop, Elvis-esque uh esque type of character absolutely absolutely and you know it's kind of funny too like jim steinman is just like 
you know, when you look at someone corrected me actually, because Bruce Springsteen is up there too, but like that, so there was some like meme online. There was like, like a, you know, like a picture online that was showing the greatest selling albums of all time. And it was like, of all of these albums, it was like what there were like 12 albums that are listed. You know, obviously, that you got like Michael Jackson thrillers on there and Sgt. Pepper's on, like all the big, all the big selling albums, Eagles are on there. And it was like highlighting the fact that there's only one album that was actually written by one. Uh, no, one of only one of these biggest selling albums of all time was actually written by one single dude, and that was Jim Steinman. Man, I, like, I didn't the, know that. He wrote, yeah, he wrote, he wrote that music, man. He wrote the music, he wrote the lyrics. Meat was the voice, but Jim Jim Steinman was the brains behind it. And a recommendation, if you've never heard it, any of you listening out there, recommendation. We got to wrap this up because we're, we're approaching two hours. And I want to thank Larry again so much for like just coming on here and and just just like chatting man it's it flew awesome. by it flew by it flew, absolutely flies by, by. flies and, by and you know what we didn't even talk too much about i you you'll come back larry you'll come back you got to come back larry you got to come I'm back sure i like to look i love to talk we talk about all kinds of things i appreciate i saw the thing when you opened the cd you made the mention about the shot put i appreciate that's very kind of you um by the way by the way oh no no just to just to, to touch back on that recommendation Jim Steinman's because I say we're running out of time. Uh, Jim Steinman's on Bad for Good, which is Jim Steinman basically telling Meatloaf, uh, "You're not work. We're not working together anymore. I'm gonna strike out on my own and sing." And it didn't work out too well for Jim Steinman. Of course, it would later on because again, it's the guy who wrote Total Eclipse from the Heart. Written and by man, Jim I, I, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, like, Steinman wrote all that. I just didn't know what that 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 uh, that's that that tidbit you just laid on me about. Of all those ten best selling, that he was the only one. He's he was the sole writer. Listen, yeah, uh, what's his face? I used to know he was in that group. What's his face? Uh, uh, produced it, and you know, uh, what's his face? Uh, Todd. Um, oh my God, Uh, Yeah, Todd Rundgren produced it, of course, and obviously they had an incredible band, the Neverland Express, that played on it. But, but, um, that was all that music was written by jim simon solo and that's what's amazing when you think about it. even the beatles man like the beatles ha- are the, the the four you know you have four guys three of which are writing music ringo is not really writing music in the way that those other guys are writing music and even although someone corrected me and said that bruce springsteen who i don't know who i know very very little about that he really could be credited with all the music on i think it's born to run which is up there I'm not, um, other than the fact that he has a Elvis fan club uh, on his jacket, and I'm I'm not, I'm not I saw him once on New Year's Eve, 1978, when I was in high school. Who Bruce Springsteen? Four hours, and it seemed like twelve. Really? I, I yeah. Think. Everybody's like, I just one of those guys just totally goes over my head. Just did, don't get it. I don't. I, I don't. Not not hating on the guy by any means, yeah, but just yeah. not my thing. Not my thing. But my recommendation on that bad for good album, and this is something you should listen to, Larry. In fact, I'll email it to you. Um, you got to check out this monologue called uh, Life, Death, and the American Guitar. And it's absolutely, it's just phenomenal. And it's like a spoken word monologue. And they used to do it live. Yeah, they used to do it live uh, in like 78 uh, when they were touring the crap out of Battle to Hell. And um, God, what, what an incredible record. 40, it's a 40-something minute record, seven songs, melt your freaking face off 
Um, I think you like that album, Jeff. I love that friggin' album. I do. I do. Uh, listen, what? Let's go out. Let's go out on a note like this. Let's do. I'm trying to think. What's a good? All right. All right. Top five. Let's do Larry's top five music recommendations that you would not expect from Larry the Wolf. Oh, I'll give you one right off the bat. Uh, Partridge Family Sound Magazine album. It Say it again. The, oh, okay. Partridge Family. Yeah, Partridge okay. Family, the Sound Magazine uh, album. It is, uh, I like most people didn't realize that was the L.A. Wrecking Crew, Hal Blaine, and the right, rest the of Wrecking Crew. Right, right, right. You know what you basically had. Like people, people like the. I'm not a beach, really beach boy, so people think I know there was the album Pet Sounds. That's that's the one guy, Dennis, whatever his name is. Brian Wilson. Brian, Brian Wilson, Wilson and the Wrecking with Crew. With the LA Wrecking yeah. Crew, yeah. Yeah. All yeah. these bands. Hal Blaine played on everything. You know, mm -hmm. uh, Joe Osborne. I mean, they, they, so though that is an LA Wrecking Crew. It's great songwriters. Uh, I'll give you another one. I, I mentioned earlier, Neil Diamond, Hot August Night, the first one. When he before when he's miserable and unhappy right. and writing great okay. songs. Before he started wearing the uh, Liza Minnelli outfits and stuff, <laughs> he was, you know, he, he was cool at that time. Uh, what else? Um, again, I always got to go back to Elvis. Elvis Prince from Another Planet that I showed you earlier. It's uh, the four shows from Madison Square Garden. I heard uh, David Bowie had, had flown over to meet his hero. There were guys from Led Zeppelin there that night. George Harrison from the Beatles was there at one of those shows. Everybody came to see the King in New York City. Uh, that's three. Yeah, two more. Shit, Patsy Cline's greatest hits because I love Patsy Cline, and it was just the 60th anniversary of her tragic passing. She passed at 30 years old in uh, March of '63. Uh, she was traveling to play a benefit show for a country DJ in Kansas City who had been killed in a car accident. 18 months earlier, she had survived a near fatal car accident. Wow. She jumps in a plane to get home faster and never makes it home. Uh -huh. uh, that's four. Let me think of what number five would be. Uh, shoot. Mott the Hoop Alive. And a sixth one I would throw in Grand Funk Live album again. Mark Farner is still playing. That would be the band I'd love to see. You know, some bands, the older I get, the, the music doesn't age well for me. Some of the, but some of the stuff I like when I was a kid, a, a, Grand Funk gets better and better. I just um, wish that two guys weren't playing rib fests and would bring back Mark Farner and play together because that's what people want to see. Right, right. Bring back the uh, the classic lineup or the the classic players that that make the thing the thing in the first. The guy who wrote ninety percent of the songs, you know, they, they were they were they were magic when it's the three of them together, and then bring Craig Frost in the the keyboard, and it's all good. Listen, that would be my recommendations. I I said that this is the end of the show, and it is the end of the show. But I realized there were three things that I really wanted to ask Larry about, and like I cannot end the show without asking him about them super quick. So we're gonna we're gonna we have barrel time? through them. Yes, we do. Yes, we I've do. Got gonna, time these got three time. things. All right, three three more things, and I'm. I got time it. if you got time, Jeff. I gotta. Well, you know what? I gotta wake up early. I gotta make the kids breakfast. I gotta make the kids lunch, and I gotta get them out the door for school. Good so for I'm you. Like, outstanding so yes but like i'm uh i my, my wife is out of the country at the moment so it's just me and the little ones and i'm i'm tired but i i i live for this shit so i'm here and you know uh, uh, again in talking about philosophy you know when 
other priorities come up into your life. I love the philosophy that Charles Bukowski says. It's like, yeah, life changes. You take on a family, whatever. You you have to work a job that maybe you don't want to work. Find a way to create in the spaces when you have time to do so. Do the things that you love in those pockets of time where you can do them. Even if it's inconvenient, even if it makes you feel tired, there's no excuse not to do it. Go and do it. If you want to do it, if it's something that makes you feel good, if it's not hurting anybody else, then take that time. That's what you got to do. You got to do it whenever you can do it. Um, so, you know, I was doing two hours ago since you mentioned your last thing. What? I was, even though it's 40 degrees here, yeah, it was a nice enough day in Northeast Ohio. I go to the shot circle. Because I just oh, do my. the USA track and field masters indoor national championships. And I took second. I'm chasing a guy who I'm going to see again in July. I got to make up the difference. You got to make up the difference. Some guys yeah. are built to show. I'm built to go. That's how it goes. Oh, shit. <laughs> All right. Ready? Here's the three things. The first thing. Did you ever, could, did you ever imagine, could you ever, they're all misfits related um, or dancing related. First thing, did you ever, could you ever have imagined that friggin' Glenn Danzig would record Pocket Full of Rainbows? I think it's terrific. Yeah, because I, I love mean, it. I love it. I'm a big I fan. Too. I'm glad he went for songs that weren't uh, the most. I love Glenn's voice. He's a, he's a wonderful talent. There's only one Elvis Presley, though. I mean, right. Of course. So it's taking on something very difficult, you know, to do that. So I give him a lot of credit. He picked songs that he could add something to, and uh, and 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 uh, in essence, make them his own, which I like, and I think that's I think that's admirable. And uh, I think he did "Let Yourself Go," and a, a few others that were not. It it shows the depth of his knowledge as an Elvis fan. He didn't go mm. for the big hits. He went for ones that it must have been he felt he could do something or have a reason to, to add something to. And I like that. Um, second thing, what you played a show with the Misfits, but you also played a show with Sam Hain. Yes. What, in your opinion, your observation at that time, whatever, the change that you noticed from the obviously it's two different bands. But just in the idea that it's like this guy is writing the songs and he's gone from this to this. What was your observation or what were, what were some of your thoughts about that transition? You did a show with Glenn Danzig when he was in The Misfits and now you're doing a show again where he's in this band Sam Hain and the songs are different. The music is different. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Oh, I, I admire somebody that's willing to recreate and do something and let something. It took a lot of guts to let something go and go something and rename something, get different people playing with them and the whole thing. That takes a lot of guts. That takes, that takes a great deal of confidence in your ability to say, I'm going to, I'm going to come back with something different. There's some elements were the same, but I mean, it was, it was still him and his voice, but it was a different style of music. I think actually, because he and I had kept in touch casually over the year, in like that two year period between the first show to that show. And in fact, he recommended me to the place, uh, uh, that I used to pre to press the um, Blood is the Harvest EP. So, you know, we had some conversation. You know, we, we were close friends, but he was a cool guy. We, we talked a couple times on the phone over the, over the year and a half, and we agreed to do a show, and he was going to do – it was actually the first show of the of their first season of the Dead Tour it was at the Pop Shop in Cleveland underneath the original Agora that burned down. And, um, you know, I – 
personally, I prefer the Misfits. If I if you ask me to choose, I the others I prefer that style more. But I will tell you an interesting story that night. I think they had a uh, either a cousin or somebody, a guy named I think Joe, that was driving the van or something for them at that time, and he was talking to somebody that was with us and said. This is the kind of sound that I think Glenn's trying to go after, like a blending more of a metal sound into it. Because I will tell you, Jeff, if we were good or bad, that's for other people to decide. What I can say is that unequivocally, we were one of the first to intentionally blend hardcore and metal. I would agree with that. I'm trying, yeah. I mean, literally, there's not too many other examples out there that I, even I could think of coming afterwards, like it existed, but it was definitely seldom. And I can't think of anything earlier than Manimals in all honesty. Well, I think it, I think it morphed into things like speed metal where they had the, right. the, the drum beats and stuff, but that's different. This was intentionally more like a punk rock attitude and, and some phrasing, whatever you call with metal or hard rock trappings and pushing them all into a blender and coming up with whatever we were. Uh, final thing, and the thing that like kind of got us, uh, uh, brought us into communication in the first place. And I can't believe that in two hours and eight minutes, this didn't come up once in conversation in any kind of way. Um, we did, for those of you who are not aware, we did uh, my friend uh, Sharpie, who sponsors the channel with riotstickers.com. We had a riotstickers.com episode where we, we picked a topic of his choice and we had this very sort of, again, doing Stanley Marvel what if scenario and the what if scenario that we came up with, that he came up with, he came up with this, not me, was who would you pick if Jerry decided not to sing for his version of the Misfits? If you could pick one person who was active at the time, you can't pick anybody. It has to be somebody who was active at that time. Or what, like in the in the realm of could could of active at that time, who would you pick to sing for your misfits? Sing for the misfits. So it'd be Jerry Doyle, a front person, meaning keeping the the the, the classic formation instead of turning it into like a three piece thing, and whoever for drums. And my number one pick was in fact Larry. The wolf and the reason why i chose larry the wolf i mean look at all the reasons that make sense to have larry the wolf it, it just he is literally the perfect fit and in a way it's kind of insane to me that jerry didn't even like that, I, that there had to be some sort of like uh consideration or something it's crazy to me that this did never went down because it would have worked and i'll tell you something i think people would have embraced what Jerry was doing, because a lot of people, he got a lot of heat for doing what he did and going off and doing a three-piece and singing instead of doing his backing vocals, which is what Jerry was really good at, doing those backing vocals. Um, he It would have been a better-received band had Larry been the one fronting it. And as it turns out, Larry had actually sang with the Misfits in the 90s, and I did not know about that. So my final question for Larry is... Tell me about this show where you jumped up on stage and sang for them. And like, what was that like? And yada, yada, yada. Well, actually, I was, uh, first of all, thank you very much. That was very kind of you. I, we didn't know each other before that, Jeff. Uh, somebody had contacted me and said, hey, did you see this <laughs> this episode of this fellow, Jeff, that had this thing? And, 
and I'm, and I'm going through. I said, right, okay, and I'm going to get like an honorable mention. That's very nice. And then I'm, wait, wait, he's the number three, number two. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's very kind of you. Credit where credit's uh, due. And I, I like your vision because I didn't jump. What happened was I was invited. I had reached out. There was a guy by the name of Mark Kennedy in uh Pres president of the uh of the misfits uh fiend club in the 90s yes, I, I know mark yes. i know mark yeah please give him my best so what I happened was, yeah sorry go ahead my yeah. my my uh my email that you sent me to has 96 in it because that's when i first got on email <laughs> i figured that i really I, uh, I that. i've held it so what happened what's funny is so i get on there and uh I think Mark found me somehow. I don't know what it was, but he said, Hey, do you know there's Manimal's websites, fan sites out there? I had no idea. You know, when you do a, an independent record, you throw it, it's like putting a message in your in a bottle. You throw yeah. it in the ocean, and someone comes up to you years later and says, Hey, I liked what you did. It's cool, right? Or you, you were terrible, whatever. But um, so I was just absolutely flabbergasted. At the same time, he gets in touch with me, and I'm pretty sure it was Mark, as I recall. And he said, Hey, you know, they're they're coming back. Uh, Jerry and Doyle are coming back. And I, uh, he put us in connection somehow. Jerry and I spoke a few times. I, I've got a, an old fax that used to came in like on that, those, those heated roll sheets where it says, Hey, get in touch with Mark Kennedy or whatever. It's J O from the pro edge plant. And Jerry called me and we were talking about, and, and I said, I would, and I wrote him a note. I said, this is what I'd like to do. We had played years before together uh, at that point, I think it was it was probably '95, and uh, he said, "I'm I'm going to do this again." And I said, "I would love to sing for you if that's what you're going to do, but I want to do new material because he had approached me about, uh, let's take your record and we'll write a few." His his words to me were, "We'll take a few, uh, we'll take your old songs on that. I like that blood is the heart. I like that. I like that that record." We'll take them. We'll we'll rework some of the lyrics. We'll put some more werewolf and vampire stuff in there. We'll co-publish it, and you'll be able to send your kids to college on it. That was verbatim. And I said, Jerry, that's cool, but as I'm very flattered. However, what I'd really rather do if we were going to do this, rather than doing that, I would just rather write new songs. And and I and they had found. He told me, Hey, I found this guy. He's a young kid. He's good. But you're my backup. Yeah. Okay, Jeff. I'm nobody's fucking backup on any fucking thing. You no. want to know something? Okay, that's an amazing story. And here's the other thing. You know, this is kind of funny, actually. It's funny you say that because when I was I was reviewing uh, Blood is the Harvest for in preparation for uh, tonight. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening. I hadn't listened to it in a long time. I'm going... Huh, because usually when you know, usually I'll throw on something from hardcore, especially if I want to listen to Burn Witch Burn, which is actually in one of my play, whatever, in one of my playlists that is in constant rotation. But I'm sitting there listening to Blood is the Harvest, and I'm going, huh. You know, like the funny thing is, like picking Larry as my number one pick is that you know, there is a quite a little bit of overlap sonically with some of that Misfits 95 material and Blood is the Harvest. There is because Doyle's guitar, listen, 
they the misfits in the 90s yes they came they sprang forth from the punk rock misfits and whatever whatever you you want to however you want to class classify it again uh trying to not not interested in just dwelling on the controversy behind it but just saying that it is what it is as its own incarnation it is not like punk rock it is there's it's metal there's or it's more metallic it is a met there's a metallic quality which in turn had they not gone with Graves and they had Larry the Wolf on the get-go, would have fit perfectly. It would have totally worked, dude. It would have worked. It would have been That's, great. It's very kind of you. And, and, I, and I will, you, as you well know, Blood is the Harvest was 10 years before. So, That's what I, you, you so, can, you know, in some way, they what you're saying tracks, me. what you're saying tracks 100%. They certainly influenced me. They're, they're a terrific band. Absolutely love when I walk around. And hopefully, maybe in some small way, maybe just maybe influenced them a tiny bit when they made their comeback. And I will tell you, Jerry was great. I, he said to me, hey, come on down. We're going to be in Cleveland. Come on down and, and play some play the shows. We'll do a few songs. He said, I, I, I really like the guy we've got. And I know they wanted somebody who was, I, I will say, closer in stature to, to how they had looked before. Right, like a smaller, a smaller guy. Well, yeah. it just it, it looked because I I get it. It was a great it was great to have you know one guy down the middle like snarling and deep into right. the crowd and two big bookends. It was a great visual, and I think they wanted to maintain that. I'm we're I'm the same size as we're all those guys. I'm just a little hairier, and so I but I thought that's a very compelling look as well. And you saw the couple of pictures that are out there of it. Now there was a videotape. Somehow the videotape disappeared, uh, and I never got to see it. But uh, you know, it was the right decision because it was the right decision for them. Because I, I was never willing to go all in. Jeff, I didn't sell as many records or do as many recordings or play as many shows as maybe I would have liked to. Have, but I got the best kids on the planet, mm. and I've done some other cool shit. My life is not all music. I've done some other cool shit along the way. And my kids and my family is fantastic. And I'm not sure I would have had them if I had devoted the time it would have taken to get into the news. So I'm, I'm content with my things. And they made the right choice. They, had, they, they found the right guy for that and that worked for them at the time. But I'm very flattered that you thought it would be a good fit because it would have been cool. And I th- in fact, they came back to Cleveland a few months after that show. And something was happening. I think uh, the singer was in jail or I don't know what happened. He got into a, some kind of a scuffle or I don't know what they it was. They could not go to Canada. He got into a fight. I think it was in D.C. and he got okay. arrested and it was like a felony or something. He could not go into Canada. OK, I, I, don't, I don't know, know if it was a felony. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. Yeah, don't I don't know. Any of that stuff. I don't know the details. I don't you know. I was doing my thing and it was it was and uh, I was relaunching. You know, I was a few years into relaunching my thing at the time and. So I remember I went down to the show and I was talking to him and Doyle said to me, Hey, you singing for us tonight? Because <laughs> they never ready to sing. And I, I, sure. But I think that there was, there was some people I think in the camp, again, Jerry and Doyle were cool with me. Always great guys to me. I didn't know them well, but they're always very cool with me as was Glenn. So I have nothing but good, good memories of any of those shows. It was a lot of fun to be on stage together with them. We did a few songs. It was dynamite. I would have loved to have done, that show in Cleveland where they, where they, they had, I think they had uh, fans saying this. I think there was definitely a sentiment of some wanted me to do it. And there was maybe some people in the camp who didn't want me to do it. So that's good. That's fine. You know, I think 
but a, a, a wrinkle that you did not touch on or a, a detail that you did not touch on is the fact that they also could mold graves or they intended to mold him as they wanted. Whereas you are kind of like your own thing already. You are your own established thing. And this idea of like, Hey, let's take apart something that you've already done. Like, Hey, let's take apart blood is the harvest and reincorporate it into new misfits. It's like, no, that's, that's manimals. I did that already. I want to write new things. It's, it's like, it doesn't really jive with like, Hey, we're trying to start over and we need someone that we can mold into our own sort yeah. of thing. So, yeah. I mean, it, it all water finds its level. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know? it, was, it was, I was very flattered at the time. Jeff, it was great. It was fun to do it with them, but they made the right choice for what their goals and right. objectives were for them right. at that time. And it wouldn't have been a good fit for me, but it's still it a great. Been, what if it's still it would have been, it would have been. Yes. And I will tell you, I, the people who were at that show that saw us together on stage, that, that front three, I think they'll tell you it was it was pretty cool. I bet it was. I, I hope that video did. someday. I hope that video or recording. I want to see that. It, That's you know what? It might be like London after midnight. Maybe it's better to be a lost film because the uh, people who saw it say it wasn't as great as it was. It's as it's become over the many right. years. When you see a movie that's been built up forever, and they say, ah, "I remember the first time my kids saw The Exorcist." I'm I'm I'm, I'm warning them. And they're like, "Yeah, it wasn't that scary, Poppy." But it's like know, the first time I saw Psycho when I was a kid. Ah, it's, this is it was it was good, but it wasn't you know it didn't blow my mind the way. Yeah, but that's just like that's just the natural reaction to things like you know when you've been desensitized or like newer generations are desensitized to things that had deeper cultural impact because they had no one had ever seen that before at yes. that time. So it has, True. and what that does is it creates a a type of trauma. Not like, not like, I don't know, maybe trauma is not the best word, but like it does like in the way of like, oh my God, that's like really, really scary. And then someone who, you know, whatever, like, you know, that comes later, you have, you have your Jasons and your Freddies and your whatnot, you're watching cycle and you're going, you call this scary. This doesn't scare me because it's just not, it doesn't, it, it it's not that it loses its potency. It's just that like things evolve and change. Yeah. And that's just how. That's just how and, it crumbles. And we know too much. We know, and we know too hard, much. It's hard not to see spoilers and hear things. And That's just so right. You're so true. But I'll tell you, Night of Living Dead, to this day, that is a movie. Oh, if you don't know yeah. nothing about Night of Living Dead, you see Night of Living Dead, you are going to be gutted. At the, that's why it's the goat to me. I'm like, that is the freaking goat. Last thing I want to say, piece of trivia, Nosferatu, 100-year-old movie. Uh, no, sorry, it's a hundred year, yeah, hundred year old movie. Um, Nosferatu, yeah, maybe a hundred one. Uh, Nosferatu, lost film. Bram Stoker's widow has all the copies torched because it is a takeoff of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yep. And um, the only reason why it is not a lost film is because one print, a single print survived made it to america wound up in a collection and then every copy that we have of nosferatu is a uh direct descendant of this one okay. surviving print that's pretty amazing and you know along those Crazy. lines uh, i'm sure you're familiar with the 1910 edison's frankenstein 
Of course, of course. Okay, so that was considered missing in action for many, many years. Right. The guy who had the one copy, I think he was from Wisconsin. Old Jones' name was Elias, Elias Detlaff. I met him selling his little copies of that. Wow. Uh, in 97, I think it was, and he signed it. And then, then it became, but I think similarly, all known copies come from that. Right. One that, that one, Yeah, the heritage he, copy. He protected that thing for God knows how long. And I think he tried, and then he was selling it on his own. So I met him when he was very elderly at the time and he signed it. Wow. It was very interesting, but it reminded me of that. I mean, it, it's not the picture Nosferatu is. It's not, you know, Murnau is versus Edison's Frankenstein, the two different. You've I mean, seen Shadow of the Vampire, popular. right? You've seen Shadow of the Vampire. You've seen Shadow of the Vampire. Yes, sir. Yes. Oh, oh, yeah. So good. So great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to thank Larry before I don't stop talking and then I stay up too late and then I can't wake up and do all the things that are required of me. So I am going to put a pin in it there. I want to thank Larry so much. We will definitely have him back. As I said, in the description of this video is Larry's band camp. So if you are not familiar with the manimals, if this is your first exposure to manimals and you want to check out more, go down to the band camp, check it out. I'm sure that's a lot of uh, official manimal sort of things. Check out the CD, uh, manimals. This is uh, studies in Scarlet. And you know what's really crazy? We didn't talk much about this, but I just want to say that this is a two disc it's like a it's like the it's like a box set that all fits into one single CD. You got everything. You got the horrorcore CD, you got the Blood is the Harvest EP. There's new tracks. You have Live at the Beachland Ballroom and Rarities. It is absolutely something you should pick up if you have a chance to. Larry, where can people find this CD? That's the only place right now is a band camp. I made a yeah. band camp. So yeah. in link in the description. Go to the description and you'll see the band camp. I'm I like to write stuff and create stuff and do stuff. I'm not great at self business. Yeah. That's my, you know, I have business, but I keep that separate. I do this as right. my, as my creative outlet. And because I'm compelled, that was something because I just had people that kept coming and say, when are you going to do this? When are you going to do this? I have to, do that to put a final chapter on it. I, I think that's the final chapter. We'll see. But I did very limited run. I probably have less than 200 copies left of it. It's 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 you know and if and if they don't dig it, it makes a wonderful set of matching coasters inside. Yeah, well, listen, you got you got a really nice booklet inside with lots of pictures. It's literally like you can get the entire discography of the Manibals in one compact package, and that link is down in the description, folks. So if anybody really enjoyed this conversation, um, uh, go check it out. Check out the Bandcamp. Follow Larry. Um, check out riotstickers.com. I'm going to thank Larry. I'm really going to, Larry, hang on one second. I'm going to end the stream. Everybody, we say peace, hair grease. We'll see you next time. Thank you.